Hi, and welcome to the 10th episode of the We Need the Roads podcast, and weight has nothing to do with it. I'm your host, Neil Gregory, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, David Long. Now, how's it going, David, and what terrible joke are you going to attempt to make my ears bleed with today? <laughs> I, uh, it's going all right, mate. I don't, I don't really have a terrible joke. So, um... so that segment has died on its ass. Brilliant. Oh, no, wait, okay. wait, wait, wait. No, oh, no. I could tell no. you. I could tell you about a book I've been reading. <sighs> I bought a Braille book that I've been reading, a horror novel. I could really feel something bad's going to happen in it. No? Did that? No. Nothing? Nothing? No. You know what? You know what? I could have got the punchline a bit better there. I'm going to have to work on it. I'll review the footage. I'll take it back and I'll look at, I'll look at how I can improve. Or perhaps just, you know, don't Google the joke like seconds before you say it so you've actually read it out maybe and my comedy career isn't dead Neil it's definitely on life support it's thrive. <laughs> anyway moving on from whatever the hell that was supposed to be it, as it is our 10th episode I thought it would be good to change things up a little bit and you know being a TV and film podcast this is going to be a special top 10 countdown of mine and David's favourite movies now with movies being generally subjective what makes a film worthy to get into our top 10s I mean, I did a media degree, I did a film history at college, so should I give the typical arty film student answers, such as anything by Orson Welles, Jean-Luc Godard, Hitchcock or Scorsese? Or do you go with the films that made the biggest impression on you throughout your life, cementing your love of cinema? Or do you go with the films that you can endlessly rewatch, the films that when you're flicking through the TV or death-scrolling through a streaming service, and you see it and you immediately think, right, I need to watch the whole film now, no matter what the time is or no matter what you have planned? So for me, my top 10 movies are a mix of films that definitely made an impression on me when I was younger and growing up, and films that I can constantly go back to and rewatch again and again. So before we get to them, how do you quantify your top 10, David? It's, pretty, it's a pretty impossible task, isn't it? Because there's I mean, not so really, because many... we've done it. I, I know, yeah, okay, <laughs> but, but, we've, but how many, okay, we've done it, but how many films did you have to select through? Like how many films did you have, and you were like, "How I've got to choose ten from this list." We we have our long list as well, right? So there's a whole bunch of films that didn't make it, obviously, because you can only pick ten. Yeah. I so think, we will I think qu- when you asked me to try and think of my ten, I yeah. came up with like forty-one or something, forty-two films, and I had to try and whittle it down from those forty films. And I was just like, "Right, okay, okay, this film, this film." So, but how many when you thought of your top ten? Right? Did you think that's in my top ten, no matter what? Like for me. I knew there was four immediately going to be in there, right near the top. And then the other six were the ones I had to think about. So about the top, maybe the top five, I knew were going to be in it. And then from there, it was like, it was so difficult to choose the next the next five because it was a, like a battle with every other list, every other film that was in that list. It was a really struggle. But you're right. Like, how do you, how do you decide this? Yeah. Like, do you go for your... You're, like you said, your art house films, or do you go for like which critics tell you are the best films? Exactly, like yeah, everything that's like the top of the top rated. Like, oh, you should love this film, so that's what you should choose. Or do you choose a film that you personally admire, even though every, someone might laugh at you for loving that film? I think you got a few of those in there, haven't you? I do. Well, I have a few in my long <laughs> list that I'm sure you'll pick up on. But yeah, definitely. The, um, but yeah, it's 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 really difficult to decide, and we've managed it, thankfully. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it didn't take too long. It was like about our, about a week. Yeah, all our, I mean, all of, everything's it's all subjective, isn't it? It's all yeah, and it is, and it, a lot of these films are films that you, I think made you fall in love with cinema or a specific genre. And I think one thing we can agree on is that none of them are bad films. They're all good films. 
you know, well, you might disagree for... on a couple of months. Yeah, yeah. To be fair, to be <laughs> fair. <laughs> when we were when we were planning it earlier in the week, there they were should a few be... discussions. <laughs> but no, they should. Every, I think every film that we've shown is is a good film. I mean, some of them I haven't actually watched in a long time. But if it was to come on the telly, it would be like, bam, yeah, I'll watch that. Although, let's face it, how often do you flick through like ITV and see what's on that? Like, you don't. know. I don't know, but Hot but... Fuzz is always on ITV too, just continuously. Like I can guarantee it's it's like we know Family Guy in America. You might have just mentioned the film on my list, Neil. Well, give it away, give it away a spoiler for me. Spoiler. Start with your number ten, David. What is number ten on your list? Okay, so my number ten is Edward Scissorhands by Tim Burton. You should definitely already know that it was by Tim Burton. Yeah, Edward Scissorhands. (laughs) It's a a lot of my films have got I noticed a very distinct soundtrack. Uh, that's going to be a theme that runs through my films. Yeah, Edward Scissorhands was a film I watched maybe for the first time when I was about... I can't have been very old. Like 12? A lot, I think a lot of my films were about when I... Films I watched when I was about that age. And I just was in love with it. I was in love with it. Yeah, it the, came out in 1990. 1990, yeah. So two years before I was born. The uh, <laughs> Yeah, I probably... Yeah, I watched that when I was about 12. I, I mean, I had a massive crush on... We and Winona Ryder in that film uh, might have influenced might have influenced the uh, the positioning and choosing this number ten spot was probably the most difficult one because there were a lot of films I, I was just like oh that should have made it number ten oh do I want to swap Edward Scissorhands for that but no Edward Scissorhands remained and uh, it's a beloved film for me that is your favourite Edward Scissorhands is your favourite Tim Burton film yeah hundred percent hundred percent name one I that would... should be. Uh, just off the top of my head, thinking about what about Beetlejuice? A lot of people. No, yeah, yeah, no, I know Beetlejuice is a good film, amazing film, but Edward Scissorhands is still my favourite. I'm also quite partial to uh, Big Fish. I, I don't know, it's, it's kind of got that Forrest Gump thing going on, but I really like Big Fish as well. Yeah, Big Big Fish is again like I mean, does he really do many bad films? And of course, really. uh, Tim Burton. You've got to forget. You can't. Sorry, you can't forget Tim Burton's Batman. Yeah, and can. Batman Returns. What do you mean you can now? <laughs> I'm telling you, they're good films. Okay. Like Holy I just said, crap. he doesn't really do any bad films. but Oh, no, he does. Um, he has done some shit in the last he... couple of years, man. What, like? Let's not say shit, but I, I think the problem with Tim Burton in the recent years is he makes the same film Alice... all the time. He did the Alice in Wonderland's film. Yeah, they weren't great. He's got, he's but... got an aesthetic to him, definitely. I love, I, love, I actually, I love Tim Burton's aesthetic, and I think his aesthetics, it's, you know, it's massive and, like, Planet of the Apes would like to say hello. Oh yeah, yeah, that. Oh god, yeah. What well, Michael Mark Wahlberg one was it? Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Dark um, Shadows. Did you saw Dark Shadows? Dark Shadows weren't bad. Dark Shadows weren't bad. Big Eyes. It's not his best film, but it went bad. Like Sweeney Todd and all that. They're all they're all decent films. But anyway, Edward Scissorhands was my number one film. I think I had to have a bit of Tim Burton. Do you mean your number t- your number ten film? Edward Scissorhands is my number ten. You film, just yeah. said your number one film then. No, it's my number ten. I know, but you literally just said it's my number one film. When? At the beginning of this? No, like just seconds ago. Oh man, it's unravelling today. It's my this number one why... Tim Burton film. You didn't say that though, you just said it's my number one film. Well anyway. <laughs> anyway. It's not my number one film. <laughs> but it's my number Good. one Good, I'm Tim glad Burton you clarified film. that David, thank yeah. you. My number ten is uh, a black and white film from 1946. Directed by Frank Capra, starring Jimmy Stewart. And it's pretty much only one film from that year that you can think about, and that is It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. Christmas classic. So, 
Christmas classic. Although, you say classic, it actually bombed when it came out originally. And uh, apparently it didn't really start getting traction and kind of reappraised as a classic until I think it was like the mid to late 70s. Uh, and again, it was one of these films that I think its rights had expired. And so basically anyone could show it on TV in America for like next to nothing, which is what they did. And oh, Christmas film, bung that on. And it kind of just grew from that. And it became a film that was on every year in the States over Christmas. And people were like, no, this film's brilliant. What are you talking about? Uh, you know, you people from 1946 don't know anything. And, you know, clearly you people then later, from 1946 don't know anything. Pretty sure that's what like critics said in the 70s and the 80s yeah. when it got reappraised. It's got this thing as like this, the ultimate Christmas film. But mm. it is dark as fuck, man. If you watched that whole film... Yeah, it really was not a wonderful life. Last... Yeah, yeah, not at all. It was really pants. <laughs> the dude literally and... compl- contemplates suicide. And just, I mean, Merry just Christmas. You know. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's literally a film about a depressed man considering suicide. So imagine he turned it off like five minutes from the end. He's like, oh, I can't watch this anymore. But I don't know, there's something about the ending. I mean, he's running down the street and like he sees what everyone else's life would have been like if he hadn't been around. Mm. And he shows the influence he made on the town. And it's just it's one of the most up, uplifting, heartwarming films ever, man. I mean, yeah, it's a beautiful, a, the funny thing, we was, um, I'd never seen it until I was at college. And we were made to watch it. And so, of course, the typical... Oh, it's black and white. Oh, it's going to be shit. You know, you had a couple of chavvy guys at the back of the classroom going on about this. And our film lecturer at the time, I always remember this, saying to us, he goes, I bet you most of you will be blubbing like little girls by the end of this film. And then he, like, bang, he bangs the lights on right at the end of the film. He goes, well, and I, like, you know, he looks at these guys and I'm like, yeah, it was okay. And you can just tell that everyone had like, been <laughs> bruv, absolutely... Bruv, can I have a, can I have a tissue? <laughs> bruv, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and um, the reason it makes my list is I had to have a Jimmy Stewart film on there, had to have a Frank Capra film on there. There's something about It's a Wonderful Life, man. And also, it's been parodied so many times in other films since. And uh, actually, one of my films later on is also got a quite a strong reference to It's a Wonderful Life in it. But uh, yeah, I think, I, and again, since I've seen it a few years back, I um, bought it on DVD, and now I force everyone around me who hasn't seen it to watch it around Christmas as well. So yeah, It's a Wonderful Life, number 10. So what is your number nine, David? My number nine is, and you kind of spoiled this earlier in the uh, the podcast, Neil. Oh, you did by mentioning it. Hot that. Fuzz. <laughs> yeah, oh, Hot yes. Fuzz. Hot Fuzz is my my uh, number two. Edgar Wright's second film in the Cornetto trilogy. Uh, you know, it was a real toss-up between Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. Uh, the World's End, let's face it, it's not his best. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, Hot Fuzz, it had to be Hot Fuzz. We, I only watched this again for like the umpteenth time about a week ago, and it's still, oh, it's still so good. Um, yeah, big fan, big fan of Hot Fuzz, Neil. Yeah, um, I, I was really debating whether Hot Fuzz was definitely in my uh, long list. I was really considering sticking it on there, but I just couldn't decide between, like you say, Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, obviously not World's End, but... I'm going to be slightly controversial. I think my favourite Edgar Wright film is Scott Pilgrim. Okay, yeah. That's that's wrong. You cannot put Scott Pilgrim above Hot Fuzz or Shaun of the Dead. I mean, you, you can because it's an opinion. Okay, yeah, you can. Okay, yeah, but you, your opinion's wrong. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's not <laughs> Jay, it's an no, opinion. It's, no, it's yours. It's, it's cool. <laughs> it's one of these films that's being reassessed. Like, Hot Fuzz was a hit when it came out. Shaun of the Dead was a hit when it came out. Um, Scott Pilgrim bombed massively. Scott, I'll give you Scott Pilgrim's an enjoyable watch. If you just, it's it, like we're gonna say a few times. Just if you're just gonna put a film on and you start sort of halfway through, Scott Pilgrim's one that you can just sort of fall into and just enjoy it. 
I mean, the soundtrack, man, is brilliant on it. I, I love the music in the film. Oh, it's yeah, one of the best soundtracks yourself, isn't it? Oh, yeah, well, you said about music as well. But, no, Scott Pilgrim, man, it was like one of the, you know, it was the first proper, what I would say, ironically, not based on a video game, but a film that looked like a video game, you know, with people exploding into coins. I mean, it's funny. I think the point where most people lose it in the film and, like, no, fuck this film, I'm not watching it, is with the Bollywood song and dance sequence near the start of the film in the first fight. I think a lot of people are like, no, fuck this film, I'm out, see you later. But if you like it from there, then you're in for the rest of the way. I mean, you know, you got Chris Evans' character is brilliant in it, man. Um, it's just, it's just an awesome film. Like, it's one of those things you put it on, and you're like, yep, I can just keep watching this. And of course, it's got Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who you know should just be in everything because she's awesome in everything. And that totally doesn't colour my opinion on that at all. Anyway. Yeah, no. Hot, hot fuzz for me. It's a, a beautiful combination of strong dialogue, funny sequences, good action in it as well. Uh, it's an all-rounder, Hot Fuzz, and that's why I think, yeah, it's it's number nine. Did you know about the famous director cameo in Hot Fuzz near the beginning? Uh, what, him as the, uh, uh, Edgar Wright as the Santa Claus? No, nope. that that's not Edgar Wright as Santa Claus. Oh, was it, um, oh wait, no, 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 Peter Jackson, no, Jackson. Peter Jackson? Yeah, Peter Jackson, yeah. Yep, yes, yep, one point for David. I knew it, <laughs> yes. You oh. knew it without Google, that's a bonus. No, I did know it without Google, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... No, I, th- I for some reason I thought that was Edgar Wright. I don't know why. And anything else for Hot Fuzz, or are you fuzzed out? I'm fuzzed out. I'm fuzzed out. So, for the greater good, I'm going to move on to number nine. And my one is from 1991, directed by James Cameron, and it is... What do you think, David? Uh, 1991? Yep. Uh, Terminator 2? Exactly. Yep, Terminator 2. Um, I was 14 when this film came out, so clearly showing my age. Now, you are not going to remember this, David, because where we live, it's kind of, it just doesn't work this way anymore. But I had to queue up for over two hours to get in to see this film. Because there was no... Just to see it? Just to see a film. longer As long as the film, queuing up outside, right, because you couldn't book tickets online, you couldn't mm. reserve seats. So if you wanted to see a film... You were 14 when you saw it? Yeah. And what it was rating 15... is the film? I thought it was an 18. 15. 15. 15. No, no. Oh, okay, okay. So I wasn't actually old enough. So I, I remember I like I was trying to make myself look older. So when I went over with one of my mates, I'm wearing my Metallica T-shirt, my jeans, my black boots, and my leather jacket, and I've got long hair. So you know I'm I'm fairly assured I'm going in. And my best mate Phil, who if you listen to this Phil, I'm sorry, you turned up wearing shorts, and I was like, dude, what are you doing? They're not going to let us in. Luckily, they let us in. You know, I mean, I think if you're 14 sneaking into a 15, it's not really that big an issue. But I don't know, man. It was just it was a big film of the summer before the film came out. Guns N' Roses had a big hit song called You Could Be Mine that was like the music video to go along with the uh, film. And so mm. there was like shots from the movie in the music video with like Guns N' Roses playing. And that was also probably the song that got me into rock music as well. So it's like seminal because of that. Like I remember just hearing that song everywhere all summer. Like back when MTV was a thing that used to play music and not shitty reality shows, that's where you would see it every day. Guns N' Roses, You Could Be Mine. And, you know, just Arnie in, Arnie in the music video, man, made it. So it's almost like a preview, and you're like, for months you're seeing this. So that you can imagine when you finally get to see the actual film it's from, you know, like, people lost their shit. With Cameron, it's, I think it's probably his best film, because, I mean, Titanic, ugh. Avatar, ugh, Dances with Smurfs. Terminator 1, very high up, but it was his first film, and I think he's improved as a director massively since Terminator. I mean, he did amazing with what he did in the first one. But I think as well, what they do really well with um, Terminator 2 is flipping Arnie around, because, you know, in the first one, he's your 
you know, unstoppable killing machine. But yeah, was, yeah. He, he, he didn't want to be the villain. So instead, you do that nice little twist where he's actually protecting John Connor. And you get Robert Patrick absolutely terrifying as the killing machine that is T-1000. And you also get some awesome liquid special effects. I mean, it was state-of-the-art CGI at the time, you know. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You can't mention T2 without mentioning the groundbreaking VFX that were going on in that. No. Um, yeah, it's truly... I mean, my, I personally, I prefer T1 to T2. Uh, I've, uh, I've actually met Michael Bean. Uh, oh, that's cool, man. That was, that was pretty cool. He was at Comic-Con. Once I got a photograph with him. Did he say to you, come with me if you want to live? He did not, no, unfortunately. You know what? I can't, I can't remember a single thing I said to him or he said to me, but I've got the photograph to prove it. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, all, that's all that matters. I think your, your thing with Terminator 1 versus Terminator 2 is like Alien and Aliens, really, but Cameron does there, isn't it? You know? I mean, okay, what are you on that then? Aliens. So I'm an, so I go Alien again. Nah. So I, I prefer the horror element to both Terminator 1 and Alien, to the action elements of T2 and uh, Aliens. Terminator 1 and uh, Alien are horror films. These are more action sci-fi films with a bit of horror. I mean, because how, how many Xenomorphs are even in a- Aliens? Because in the first, there's only one in the there's first. There's one in one. Alien. And then how many are in Aliens? There's like an absolute army shit ton. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I feel like the... Uh, the fear factor of the Xenomorphs was sort of removed a little bit from... And that's what I didn't like about it. You know what both films have in common? Michael Bean. Mm-hmm. And I met Michael I mean, Bean. I've, I feel, I've, <laughs> you, told, you told everyone, Sorry, like, yeah. minutes ago. Yeah, so I think... And also, you've got, you got to say, um, Linda Hamilton, you know, was awesome in it as Sarah Connor. Like, you know, in, yeah. like, in the first film, she's, like, doe-eyed, young girl who's thrown in the situation. And then when you see yeah. her in this one, she's been in a mental home for, like, however many years... She's like fully jacked. worked out. Yeah. yeah, she's jacked to the max. And, you know, she's just a wild-eyed survivalist, Sarah Connor, man. And then at that point, how many strong female protagonists, or like, you know, smashing it with Arnie, did you have? Bar Ripley, that's it, yeah. He was ahead of his time. That's but Linda Hamilton in the latest Terminator film was also the best thing in it. Because she literally was like, okay, so take the Linda Hamilton from Terminator 2, add about 30 years to her, and she is just like full-on psychotic redneck killing machine old woman it's like imagine if you got Frances McDormand from No Man's Land but she was being traced by Terminators that's yeah. kind of what you get <laughs> take that shit in a bucket have you you need to rewatch No Man's Land to not. think if that's the case we're not we're not wasting time that. on that man no, is, uh, that, is that not how it ends like well, that's when the Terminators turn up and like start chasing her in a RV no no that's not what happens because uh, if that happened I would watch it David I would watch the rest of it I would watch it right now I would stop the podcast uh Okay, so that's my number nine, Terminator 2. So what is your number eight? Uh, my number eight is the only documentary that I've got in my list. And Shit, I, thought, I don't uh, have it's any. Gotta be, yeah, I thought there's, I'll have to have a documentary in there somewhere, and I really I mean, you don't. It. I mean, no, you don't, no. Top ten's whatever, but uh, I, I, this is still probably would make my top ten. And it's Bowling for Columbine by Michael Moore. Um, mm. Which, I mean, Michael Moore is a very diversive... Divisive? Divisive? Is that what I was meant to say? I think so. Um, he's a, yeah, he, well, he, he's that. He's that word. Like, I mean, some of his methods as well I don't necessarily agree with, but Bowling for Columbine, it was made in 2002, and it's, some of it is some of the stuff in that film is still relevant today, and it is mind-blowing. Some of the, I mean, being English, 
seeing some of the American gun laws that were happening at that time is just like, what is going on? He literally walks into a bank and gets a gun for opening up a bank. Like, he's getting his hair cut and he's ordering, like, buying bullets. Goes, like, can you imagine popping to Tesco's and buying a gun and bullets and then just being like, oh, cheers, Tesco's. Uh, every little helps. I remember seeing um, guns in Walmart when I was out in the States. And I was like, okay, that's um, something they have here. Uh, and it's still, a lot, a long part of it is still relevant. You know, how many mass shootings are we still getting? Didn't Trump have, like, the most amount of mass shootings? Uh, the entire documentary is so well put together. Um, and it's, it definitely makes you think... It's it's got it like it's got the strongest well, that, agenda that's you what could any, possibly that's what any have. Good documentary should do. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's, it's it has it has its massive agenda and it's going to manipulate you into thinking a certain way, and it does it so well. I mean, it quite literally compares the NRA to the KKK and <laughs> says they're one in the same at one point, which is a bit like, mm. but uh, it's I, I I I love it. I love it. It's my favorite Michael Moore documentary. It's my favorite documentary in general. Uh, yeah, Michael, I mean, Michael Moore, he's done, like, he's top, my top three would be Bowling for Columbine, Fahrenheit, Rod, Roger and me. Right, uh, so David, I think you need to go out and watch some more documentaries. <laughs> no, that would be but my favourite for Michael Moore. Right, now, David, I, I might have told you this, but when I was at uni, I wrote my thesis on Michael Moore. So I have a few opinions on this, so uh, get ready. Right, I don't think... Garland for Columbine is his best film. Uh, Ro Roger and me. You're going to go Roger me. and me, yeah. yeah. I'm going to go Roger and me. see that coming a mile well, yeah. Yeah, because that is more pure in its intent in the way he did it. He sets him, Michael Moore is a character within his own films. Yeah, right? he, he And he portrays this schlubby everyman to get the audience on your, his side. That's what his yeah. first, it's his first tool of getting you to agree with him. Mm -hmm. But what I don't like about Michael Moore, and that was a weird thing, right? When I started writing my thesis on him, I was a big fan. Just like you, I'd read I'd read his books, I'd got all his films, and I was getting my hands on everything of his. And by the end of it, I was like, eh, do you know what? What Michael Moore does very well is, and this is was his this was his main thing. He made he was he was ahead of his time in a little way because if you look at people like John Oliver now, and yeah. he just straight in on like big issues to deal with like society in general, especially in the states. And he doesn't have to sugarcoat it, but he can be funny. And he, I think that kind of stuff that you get on a lot of stuff in the States now, you wouldn't have got that without what Michael Moore did in the past. Mm. It's his tactics, essentially. I mean, he goes after... Like, there's a, there's that famous bit in Bowling for Uncle Lambine, isn't there, where... What, he's got Charlton the bit, Heston? Charlton Heston. And yeah, yeah, it's yeah. been proven that the footage where he says, take for my cold dead hands at the rally after the Columbine shooting, that was from like a year or so before. So, But the way he's edited it, it makes it look like the NRA oh, did this take this, this gun from my after. cold dead hands. That That's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. Made, and he's, he's edited it in a way to make it look like that happened yeah. after Columbine. Yeah, like I said, like, like I said, he's per he's brilliant at manipulating uh, the audience into thinking a certain but way. But is that what a documentary should do? Shouldn't a, do good, shouldn't a good documentary present the facts on both sides and let you make up your mind? Uh, not tell you this is well I mean it can I suppose it can tell you I guess you, it right, depends this on is my opinion of, on it well, d your de depends on your definition of what a good documentary should be I guess uh, and it depends on your own personal like if you're going to go into watching Bowling for Columbine and you're an NRA like you, yeah, you've got your you're own gonna hate gun it. in America yeah. Yeah. If you, you wouldn't watch it though would you let's be honest you're not going to like Michael you're not going to watch it mate no yeah so uh, it all depends so he's on preaching your... to the converted though really isn't he 
see, it's, whereas for, for me, I just think a good documentary gives you the facts, gives, shows you both sides of the story, and then lets you decide. Um, and, you know... Um, yeah, now, Michael okay. Moore's got an agenda, 100%. Uh, and I can see why that'd be a problem for you. Well, it's not, a, it's not a problem. It's just you need to be aware of that's what he's doing. So you can't... And it's just like where he gives you all these facts and says, they've done this, you know, oh... A, A did this, and you know this company did this. It's bad. Blah 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 blah. But you need to check how you need to check his information as well. You see, just like he tells you not to take stuff at face value, you can't take what he says at face value as well, because like you say, he manipulates stuff. But what I will say, the positive of Michael Moore is, he, the, this is actually the end of my thesis. Right, it was essentially Mike Michael Moore. Ironically, is the fast food equivalent of documentary. He's like a good. He's like a gateway drug to documentaries. You know, you. If you enjoy, because uh, what I he's, can, yeah, I can understand, I can understand where you're coming from. Well, because what he's doing is he's making a serious subject, and he's doing it in an entertaining, shocking way. And his method is shock. You're like, I can't believe people do that. That's crazy. Yeah, no, it's his sarcasm and, then, and comedic av- uh, approach to everything. Yeah, yeah. and it's it's, it's it's every man character that he portrays in the films. Mm. I think Roger and Me is a lot better because it's closer to where he it was about him. Well, that was his it was his personal it's his life story. Personal, yeah. Like, yeah, it was his home. It was his. It was way more personal to him. Do you know what his second film is? His second film, I had to get on import because it wasn't really readily available, and it's absolute dog shit. And it's called uh, the Big One, and it's just a documentary about him going around on a book tour, celebrating his success of his first book, and it's so badly done compared to Roger and Me. Is that even and a documentary? Th- well, yeah, 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 like, yeah. Really? Def- yeah. No, is it, it is. Yeah. It's, a, it's directed by Michael Moore, starring Michael Moore, all about yeah. Michael Moore on a book tour. And I love the fact that the camera just happens to be on him when he gets told his books have gone to number one in the in the uh, top sellers list. I mean, I was watching that going, mate, you're supposed to be a proper documentary maker. Bullshit was a camera on you when that came through, you know. I don't know. I just, uh, I think, uh, right, documentaries to look at, David. Um, the Thin Blue Line, Errol Morris. Yeah, I've watched it. Yeah, there you go. That, how is that not better than Bowling for Columbine? I, I, I just love Bowling for Columbine. All right, you can love it. That's fine. I, not going to uh, argue with you on that. Yeah, I just loved it. I mean, don't get me wrong. He, his style was completely like it. 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 It's, it wouldn't work now. I don't think. Like, is even the well, documentaries no, that he's bringing out now? Even the documentaries he's bringing out now aren't aren't up to standard with what he was doing early two thousands. Anything he's done after Fahrenheit hasn't been as shocking. Really, Sicko wasn't very good. Fahrenheit eleven nine. Uh, wasn't wasn't very bit of good. a rambling mess, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But the um, thing is, you've got m- many more people now taking the government to task on these issues. You know, there's a lot more people out there saying this stuff's wrong, raising awareness about it. Yeah, like Ma- Michael Moore built that platform early. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know, he gets credit for that, and for like you say, um, shining lights on these issues. So you know, it doesn't matter how he's done it; he's brought attention to the issues that needed to be drawn attention to. So, you know, yeah, it definitely... Okay, yeah, I've changed my mind. He definitely deserves to be on your list for just for doing that. But I would also say the best documentary series I've ever seen is Paradise Lost by Joel Berlinger. It's, a, it's about three young uh, Metallica fans in, I think it's West Arkansas in the early 90s, and they're accused of murdering a couple of children. And there's literally nothing that ties them to the crime. There was no evidence, there was no DNA, and just because these three kids were the ones who, like, wore black and... Went out to the graveyard and you know. I think you cra- mentioned this in our yeah. in our other episode about um, the hotel. I've forgotten the name of that. His documentaries. He did a series of them over three years on the same thing. So there was Paradise Lost, One, Two, and Three, and it was kind of similar to how Making a Murderer has become massive in the last few years for Netflix. What Berlinger did is his 
documentary about the case got interest in the case and it got the case reopened and got people looking into the case so is paradise lost uh, is paradise lost on your list uh, i haven't got any documentaries on my list uh purely because i i don't put documentaries on for enjoyment whereas i put films on you put documentaries on to you know i suppose learn about stuff i think you have to be in the right mental mood to watch a documentary i you know i don't i don't sit down and think oh i'm gonna relax what deep dive insight into a subject matter am i gonna watch you know if I want entertainment to like wash over me, then it's going to be a movie and not a documentary in that sense. So what is, uh, what is your number eight, Neil? My number eight is uh, from... Actually, I'm going to do this the other way around. It's a Star Wars film, David. Okay. But which one is it? Uh, my favourite Star Wars film is Empire. So As is I'm mine. Guess Empire. <laughs> yes, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, we from, agree from on 19... something. So Empire Strikes Back from Irvin Kirshner in 1980. Now, in mine and most people's opinion, this is the best Star Wars film. I mean, for so many reasons. You've got Luke and Yoda's training montages. You've got Billy D. Williams, Lando Carusian. You've got Luke getting his hand cut off. And, of course, the whole I am your father re- re- revelation. I mean, come on. It's not all a spoiler. The one, all, the one, all the lines in that, yeah. Like, uh, I love you. I know. Yeah, yeah, the film's been out, though, for, like, what, 41 years now. So, holy crap, 41 years this film is old now. That is bizarre. But also true. Um, I mean, it's funny, the whole I am your father thing, right, that must have broke whatever people could break before breaking the internet was a thing. You know, I guess their minds, you know. <laughs> and the fact they had to what, wait. What were they doing? Yeah, how did they, they had to talk to somebody about it, like, straight away. How did you get that out of your system at that time? In the long, long ago, David, people would go out to places called pubs and bars and restaurants Can you imagine the reaction in the cinema afterwards? To, yeah, now, After to the, like that. Yeah, I am your father, and everyone's just like, what the fuck? No way, dude. Yeah. yeah. Everyone said dude in the 80s, I'm assuming. But, um, I mean, yeah, you've got some amazing set pieces, like, starting off at Hoff. I mean, I could keep going, but, you know, also, that ending. And also, the heroes lose and barely escape with their lives. It's a downer. Luke loses a hand and car- Han is frozen in carbonite. He's taken mm-hmm. to Jabba, man. And that's why Empire's the best. And it's the best because George Lucas didn't direct or directly write the script. Yeah, you're not a big fan of George Lucas, are you? Not at all, man. And nah, yeah. His, 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 I, I've done my research on this as well. And now Lucas, he had such a nightmare, four years nightmare, making the first Star Wars film. That, and also, he didn't think it was even going to be successful. But when it was a monster hit and they wanted a sequel out of him, he didn't want to do it. Sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. He didn't want to direct it and he didn't want to write it. What he did is he did the story blocks. Right, he he, he basically done a pass on. He done a, like the story credit. So he's like, right, it's basically going to start here. This needs to happen there, and then it's there. You guys go and fill in the blanks. And he spent most of his time uh, officially. Apparently, he was too busy uh, establishing two companies at the time: ILM, which you know, Industrial Light Magic, which was like the world leading visual effects company for yeah. like decades, and then also setting up his own co- uh, film company, Lucasfilm. So, like I said, he didn't direct Empire. And what he did, he approached one of his former film school teachers, Irving Kirshner, to direct in instead. Uh, Lucas also collaborated with writer Leigh Brackett. Now, she turned in the initial draft of the script. And Brackett is a real kind of, you know, people look, think, who's Leigh Brackett when I see? Well, I did a little bit of research. And she made her name on some classic film noirs, writing uh, films such as The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye, as well as some classic westerns, such as Rio Bravo and El Dorado. But she also um, wrote lots of sci-fi romances. Uh, but this is like back in like the 40s and 50s, which is crazy, man. Like turning out... I mean, you think a female author in a genre like that back then, you know, people weren't even reading the genre, really. So to be a female author in it as well. 
But apparently Lucas wasn't a big fan of Brackett's draft. And then unfortunately, she actually passed away before any changes could be made to it. But apparently, um, a lot of the key story beats from her draft remained in the final uh, version. Uh, that script was actually then rewritten by Lawrence Kasdan, who'd worked with Lucas on the Indiana Jones films. So, uh, yeah, taking a writer known for film noir westerns and you know her own planetary romance novels, if you think about it, Brackett seems a perfect fit for the Star Wars world. And, uh, you know, what a surprise that the generally most loved film from all the Star Wars canon probably had the least direct input from Lucas. No, like I mentioned, Empire Strikes Back is my favourite film uh, from Star Wars as well. So uh, let's move on to your number seven, David. Uh, my number seven is a Disney film, actually. I thought I'd have to put a Disney film in there just because of you how... You are Mr. Disney. I'm not Mr. Disney. I just I do enjoy a Disney film, even though I don't necessarily agree with everything Disney does on a corporate level. Because, <laughs> um, you know, Mickey likes his money. But uh, I had to put a Disney film in there just because of how influential Disney was to me growing up. I loved it. My parents would always read Disney books to me or uh, we'd watch Disney films together. And, yeah, it's just huge to me. Disney, the music. Um, Disney music. I mean, is there a better... Is there anything better than... Like, as in from a, a film like that's so good at making music for films? Yes, than, than South Disney. Park. You, you just compared like all the Disney films songs to a South Park song. South Park bigger longer uncut is a musical and it is glorious okay well I'm just gonna I'm gonna just straight up ignore that I mean don't get me wrong I like South Park but I'm just gonna ignore that comment Book of Mormon <laughs> anyway the film is so my number one Disney film for myself is which Beauty is your number Beast. seven yeah which is the number seven <laughs> uh, you have to Beauty stop saying this is my number one people my will get confused one Disney film generally. Disney film Beauty and the Beast and that's on my number seven on the list. Uh, so there's there's plenty of Disney films that I really love. I mean, The Lion King, Tarzan, uh, Aladdin. Cool, uh, but why why Beauty and the Beast? Why Beauty and then? the Beast? Again, I think I think it's it's that film I watched when I was younger, and I the, the sound of uh, that piano playing and the Beauty and the Beast song and the story and the fact that it was a I think a female heroine. Like I think I really it's not just like your your casual. I mean, to be fair, you princess don't get many male that heroines. Gets saved by a, 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 you know, princess that gets saved by a, um, by the prince. It's, it's, it's not like it's, it's different. It's a, it's a tale. It's a tale as old as time, Neil, and I, and I loved it. Okay. Anything else to add on Beauty and the Beast? Well, have, have you even seen? I it? Am, I don't think I. You know what? I may have years ago, but I generally don't ever rewatch Disney films. Yeah, because uh, you don't. For you're me, not anim- a fan of any of them, are you? Well, I, no, with Pixar Disney, I'm a fan of. And uh, when it comes to animation, yeah, I wasn't really a ma- massive fan probably when I was a kid. Ironically, um, one of the films in my top still to come, I actually ended up seeing, almost sorry, almost seeing, because I couldn't get in to see The Lion King uh, re-release. Well, no, sorry, The Jungle Book re-release when I was a kid. And uh, I ended up almost seeing another film that would have probably messed me up for life if I'd seen it at that age. But that's to come. No, I think for animated films, if I was going to stick one on my list, which I haven't, I probably would have gone for probably like something like the original Toy Story or something like uh, Miyazaki's uh, Spirited Away or oh, Princess yeah, Monoki. Yeah. Oh, if you're going to go down that sort of, yeah, Princess Monoki. Yeah, I, I, was, I was a big, was a big Ghibli fan. I got, I got into Ghibli at one point. Like, I, I, I pretty much went all the way back to the start. I think it was it. I can't even remember the name of the first film, but I remember getting stuff like um, 
uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, which was awesome, and um, Hell's Moving Castle was a later one of that. But yeah, no, really got really got into. Oh, also, oh, actually, I tell you, no, an animated film, Grave of the Fireflies. David, have you seen Grave of the Fireflies? Yeah, I have. Yeah, that should be on the yeah, list. It's beautiful. That should be on the long list. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Beauty be, be and the Beast for me is a real nostalgic element to yeah, it. That's fine. And, um, and you know what? I love that. I love that the, the the male character in it, the main male character, other than the Beast, uh, Gaston. I I I love a good bad guy in a film, and I think he was the like the first ever as a little kid. His first ever like good bad character that I that I really loved. I love Gaston, even though he's a complete dick. There's, uh, <laughs> all there's all I had from him. that was that you love complete dick. Yeah, um, that's it, mate. <laughs> Right, so time, mu- sometimes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, okay, uh, on to number seven, and my number seven, it is an MCU film. But David, which one is it? Well, I do know because we ran. Or you're going to forget, it, and I know you're a massive uh, Watiti fan. So you've kind of spoiled it right there, David. Yeah, so it's for Ragnarok from Takawatiti <laughs> from 2017, which makes it, I think. The most recent film on my list uh, at number seven. Now, it's the only MCU film on my list, and it was really hard to choose between this and Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. Now, obviously, Infinity War, you have to pick for that ending, uh, but I've just literally had Empire Strikes Back, which is kind of similar. The bad guys win, and then the film ends, and you're like, what? I have to wait a year to see how it ends, you know, how, how it gets resolved. And so, uh, having two films with a similar ending, I thought, no. So, that dumped uh infinity war out and endgame as good as it is uh and the fact it, it's that combina- you know that combination of 22 films in 10 years and portals man portals in the cinema was an amazing experience you know at what 10 to 3 in the morning and everyone just losing their shit and cheering when uh on your left is heard yeah um, yeah yeah i've used that clip of that song yeah. that, that exists and everyone's that- just like Wah! yeah it that's literally amazing. what it was like in most cinemas man like when, when uh, Cap gets the hammer. Yeah. But um, I think <laughs> my reason for picking Ragnarok is I think with Infinity War and Endgame, you need to watch them both. You know, you don't just tune into Infinity War and then stop. You have to watch them both back to back pretty much or as, as in a, a quick amount of time as possible. So it's just the length of it for me. I'm like, oh, it's too long what to watch. What would that get to? Like five hours? Uh, probably a bit longer. I forget off the top of my head. Um, so for me, Ragnarok is a little bit shorter. It's a comedic action cosmic comic book film. Hemsworth, they finally realise, should be funny as four rather than just muscles and talking portentously like he does in the first couple of films. And they they fully commit to the fact that four is a lovable idiot. Kate Blanchett is awesome as hella. Feels um, Phil, <laughs> four's evil sister in a fully goffed up camp performance. And of course, you got Jeff Goldblum playing well. Jeff Goldblum as the Grandmaster. <laughs> he just you know, plays himself. Yeah. Just, just, he's just. <laughs> Oh, yeah, so what am I doing today? I'm an intergalactic uh, warlord. Cool, okay. Yeah. Where's my camera? And he's just exactly the same as you'd expect him to be in any other. Uh, you've got Tessa Thompson, brilliantly introduced drunkenly as uh, Valkyrie. And, of course, you've got Watiti himself, pretty much stealing the film every time he crops up, as Korg, piss-off ghosts. Not yeah. Korg, piss-off ghosts is his full name, but just that line, <laughs> man. Piss-off ghosts. Um, also, don't forget, the film, importantly, reunites Thor and his brother Loki, after Loki being an antagonist for like the previous appearances in the MCU. And um, it's this kind of film where 
we start turning Loki back to not obviously not a good guy, but he's much more helping out for by the end of the movie than he is actively trying to stop him. Uh, and of, of course, don't forget, it's got the addition of elements of Planet Hulk. So that's as close as you're going to get to see to that version of that. So props to Mark Ruffalo for that. I just think it, it's just la- genuinely laugh out, loud, laugh out loud funny the whole way through. You know, the opening scene when he's like tied up by the giant fire demon and he's just swinging around. He's like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Okay, continue. You know, it's just, uh, I think in a lot of these epic fantasy films, they take themselves really seriously. And Watiti just undercuts it. Whenever it's getting too serious, joke. You know, Valkyrie yeah. does a big speech and arrives in the ship, does a big action scene, and then she drunkenly falls off the edge of the thing. It's brilliant. You don't see it coming. I mean, uh, get help, for Christ's sake. You know, get help is brilliant. When you've even got Carl Urban in a tiny role, and he's still brilliant, this is my stuff. You know, it's, it's just, ah. Oh, so I you're a fan, film, Neil. You're a fan. You're a fan. <laughs> it also sets up perfectly the events for Infinity War. Oh, and on music... It's got one of the best uses of music in a film because it uses Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song. And again, the lyrics in that song correspond almost exactly. Literally, they're singing about Valhalla while they're fighting in Valhalla. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's pure entertainment from start to finish. I love it, I think it, if you put any sort of rock metal music into a movie, you're going to like it. No, it has to be linked to what's going on on the screen. You can't just be like... Like, okay, so um, Iron Man uses Iron Man at the end. Makes perfect sense. But then at the start of Iron Man 2, they use Shoot to Thrill. Well, what's that got to do with fucking anything? It hasn't, you know. So it, it's out of the way. Well, when he's like, doing oh, the expo. And he's yeah. thrilling anybody, everybody at the expo no, because of his... Uh... No, the lyrics <laughs> in the song, right? The lyrics in the song need to literally correspond to what's going on on screen or a deeper, uh, a deeper element of the storytelling where you can go, right. oh, that's clever, because that means that. And one of the films much higher at my list has probably my favourite example of that. We've, got, we've gone off on a tangent again. Well, let's, let's, <laughs> let's keep so, it. So, what is your number seven? seven? No, six, David. What is your number six? Mm, my number six is a film that we've already spoken about quite a lot on this podcast, so I won't touch upon it. Uh, it's The Shining, uh, Kubrick. It's my favourite Kubrick film, uh, and there are some good Kubrick films, so that's saying a lot. Uh, yeah, The Shining. We've mentioned it in our very first podcast episode, so if you haven't listened to that, go and check it out because we review Doctor Sleep and we talk about The Shining there. It is a masterpiece of cinema. It has so many different layers and uh, interpretations. Uh, it's so. It's my number one horror film. I'm going to. Oh, no, it isn't. It's not even my number one horror film. Spoilers. Take that out. Cut. <laughs> <laughs> Controversial? Um, no, we're leaving that in. Because now we want to know. It's, so yeah, it's um, it's 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 fantastic, a fantastic movie, and we've already mentioned it. So I don't think there's in a previous podcast. So I won't touch up on it too much. All I'm going to say is it's not my favourite Kubrick film. Uh, can I have a guess? You can. I don't think it's a Clockwork Orange. I don't. You'd be right. Think it is Eyes Wide Shut because it's no one's. I uh, saw Eyes Wide Shut in the cinema, man, on a double bill with Varsity Blues. That was a weird day. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, that's going to be my guess. You'd be totally wrong. No, I think that's uh, boring and pretentious. No, it actually is Full Metal Jacket. Ah, uh, okay, 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 okay. Yeah, Fair Full enough. Metal Jacket's my favourite one. Private Pile and Lear Emery, just amazing. That. Cool, okay, so let's, we, uh, as you said, um, if you haven't heard us talk about Doctor Sleep and The Shining, go back and listen to that on our very first episode. So, my number six is a film I know you haven't seen, David, and it's the second black and white film on my list from 1994. I'm not going to be able to guess it, probably. I think you will. I think you will. From what? 
It's from 1994, and it is in black and white. And you can't just Google black and white films 1994. No, no, I'm, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I don't know. I'm not. I don't know. To go and tell me. Okay, it is Clerks by Kevin Smith. Oh, bugger. Yeah, I could have got that. Because you've been trying to get <laughs> I mean, me I, to watch that for so I long. I literally showed you the trailer last week. Yeah, oh, yeah. God, yeah. Yeah, no, no, fair enough. Yeah, okay, continue. You, you've, you've got a very specific reason why you love that yeah. film. Yeah, 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 is, yeah. So it was made for $27,000 and shot in black and white at the convenience store that director Kevin Smith worked at himself. Now, Clerks was a film that made me want to go and become a filmmaker because at the time I was working late at night at McDonald's in my early 20s Literally going nowhere in life, and I would, you know, I'd get in late, and I'd see all these kinds of great American indie films on uh, Film Four and Channel Four late at night. That's where I first saw um, the Coen Brothers, it's where uh, Richard Linklater and uh, Kevin Smith. Clerks was one of those films, and the film spoke to me as it was my life. You know, it's two mates stuck in dead end jobs, talking about movies, and having to deal with fuckwit annoying customers every day. That literally was my life, except you know, theirs was a convenience store, mine was a fast food restaurant, uh, and. Clerks itself is the story of two, well, clerks, Dante and Randall, who work in a quick stop convenience store and the neighbouring video store, respectively. Now, Dante's asked to come in on his day off and he has to deal with dickhead after dickhead customer. And he's not helped by his friend Randall, who's just downright toxic and abusive to customers who come in to the store at the same time. There's also a romantic subplot where Dante finds out his ex-girlfriend is getting married and he wonders if he's made the right decision uh, with his, being with his current girlfriend, who's always pushing him to do something better with his life. And I think what makes Clerks so important to me is that that razor-sharp script and how much Tante's life paralysed mine at the time. I think, in fact, one of the first unfinished stories I ever tried writing was essentially Clerks, but set in a fast food restaurant. Now, of course, if I'd actually bothered doing it, years later, when Kevin Smith returned and did Clerks 2, where did he set it? A fast food restaurant. Fast so, food restaurant. It was, <laughs> yeah, so it's cool in a way that, you know, my thinking was the same as his, but then again, my thinking was obviously influenced by his because I'd watch Clerks while well, well doing that job. So I was like, where would be the best place to put two people who have to deal with dickhead customers after a convenience store? Fast food restaurant. And, you know, and it's a great film. It's, it's, it's a really great film as well. But do you know what? In America, the film was originally given the dreaded NC-17 rating, simply down to the film's explicit dialogue. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a pit where... Um, the one of the character Dante David, right? Dante David. No, that's not his name. It's just Dante. Yeah. He finds out he, he, him and his girlfriend have this conversation about how many people they slept with, and she's like um, something like five, and he kicks off. He's like oh, five. Blah, 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 blah. She goes, "What about you?" And he's like um, seven or something like that. And then she kicks off at him. He's like seven. Blah, blah, blah. And she goes, "Well," and then they're talking about it, and they're all pissed off at each other. And and then she, and then she mentions another guy. And he goes, "Wait, I thought you didn't say you slept with him." Oh, no, no, but I gave him a blowjob. <laughs> and she goes, wait, so that doesn't count. And then they go off this whole big argument. And he goes, okay, well, so how many guys have you gone down on then? And then she says, I don't know, something like 37. <laughs> and he's just like, wait. He goes, what do you mean something like? Is that up to and including me? It fucking better be. And it's just like, he, goes, he just turns to, and a customer like walks up in the middle of this argument. And he's like, 37, my girlfriend sucks 37 dicks. And the guy, without missing a beat, goes, what, in a row? <laughs> and then he, he just turns around and goes, then like, they argue, she storms off. And he's like, yeah, try not to suck any dick on the way to the parking lot. And the guy goes, like, puts his hand up and goes to follow her out there. I mean, it's lines and like, exchanges like that. There's a Star Wars bit in it, right? where they're deb debating whether Luke and the Rebels were actually a bunch of mass-murdering terrorists when they blow up the second Death Star, because for a construction project that large, you need independent contractors. And 
<laughs> you know, they clearly weren't all evil Imperials. They were just poor space people who needed to make a living. And then they've just been blown up by, you know, Luke and his band of Nazi-looking um, terrorists. I got excited on that one. Yeah, I know you're a massive fan, man. You, but to be fair, you've got a very good reason for watching it, and you've been trying to yeah, get yeah. me to watch it for a long time. But I think if I was to watch it, I wouldn't have that. Well, it wouldn't same, have no. It wouldn't have the same effect. No, you, like, if anything, no. I might not even like it. So, but I mean, yeah, people I can understand. Don't. I can thoroughly understand why it's definitely in your top ten. All I say is, all Jedi had was a bunch of Muppets, and also not forgetting the film actually introduces Smith himself as an on-screen character and his uh, friend Jason Mewes as. The now infamous Jay and Silent Bob, who were the local neighbourhood weed dealers. And they'd go on a cameo in uh, more of his films before you actually get to Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. And that almost, that almost, I had to decide between Clerks, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back and Chasing Amy is my favourite Kevin Smith film. And again, also Dogma. Dogma is brilliant. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck as uh, Avenging Angels in New Jersey. It's just, have you seen Dogma? I have, yeah, I have. Yeah, so a great film. Uh, yeah. Probably his most visually impressive film as well. Uh, and that was one of the things with Clerks was, it doesn't look great, but it's so well written. And uh, I think you kind of see as Smith's career has gone on, I think writing dialogue is, you know, just generally a writing. I mean, he has directed some good TV stuff for DC in the last couple of years. So I'd just like him to get that shot. I mean, you know, he almost, yeah, he almost died from a heart attack a couple of years ago. And uh, since then, he's like turned his life around. He's lost loads of weight. And I just I'd love to see him get a shot at a big DC or Marvel movie, man. Because he's been that he is that comic book guy who's had you know he was a comic book guy before comic book guys were like cool. He's got that background. I mean, he's, he even has a show called Comic Book Guys on uh, I think it's on Amazon Prime over here, where him and his mates just talk about comics. I think there's like seven seasons of it or something like that, man. But um, yeah, man, Kevin Smith. Ah. So my uh, now we're into the top five, where before it was dun, very dun, much dun. like a competition between every other film that I've seen. But my top five are pretty solidly, like, these are my top five films. Uh, and it starts with, which you might be surprised by how low it is, I guess, in the top five. Uh, Back to the Future. <gasps> Sacrilege, now, you're off the podcast. And, <laughs> I'm going to find someone who has it higher we're, in the list, David. Well, we're both, we're both big fans of Back to the Future. Um, clearly. And, yeah, clearly. And <laughs> it's a, uh, I mean, it's just... I just want, there's many, there's not many films I consider, like, near perfect. And these top five films for me are, um, Back to the Future is just a joyride from perfect. start to finish. I think it's such a shame that Michael J. Fox uh, had his career basically cut short uh, because of Parkinson's. Uh, I mean, he's done amazing things for Parkinson's. But he, he was, I mean, imagine how big Michael J. Fox would be now. If 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 he if he could have continued out as he was, he he uh, would have been he would have been Tom Cruise stature easily. I think. He's already huge now, but anyway, like he's he yeah he would have been just the star of stars probably. Uh, he had everything, and and I think it's 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 bonkers that he wasn't even cast first time around. Yeah, who was um, who was the original Martin McFly? They actually started filming with this guy. And then yeah, they, they, I've seen a, I've seen a few of the uh, the shots. And who is it? The, the diner shot. It's um oh, I've forgotten his name. I love torturing you on the podcast. I do know yeah. it. Um Yeah, but you can't just type in Google, David, while we're live on a podcast. I it can. is Eric exactly Stoltz. Eric, Eric Stoltz. Stoltz. Yeah. That's yeah. it. The good thing is though, unfortunately for Michael J. Fox and his like health issues, at least they completed the trilogy. And also what I like is uh, throughout the years, everyone's kept trying to say, Oh, let's do a reboot. Oh, let's do a sequel. And 
Bob Zemeckis and uh, I think it's Robert Gale, who is the writer as well, they've all said, while we're alive, no one's touching Back to the Future. The only worry that is these guys are getting on now. So, you know, in another 10, 15 years or 20 years, they will be probably be dead. And, the, you know, it'll be up for grabs again. And we're probably going to get like some fucking Disney Channel nut little shit. Having said that, though, if you think about it, when Michael J. Fox did it, he was a sitcom star anyway. He used to have to shoot. Um, he was on fa- the sitcom Family Ties. He'd shoot that Monday to Friday, then Friday night, fly off to two back to the future, shoot that at weekends, and then fly back and start Monday morning again. And because because they were so far behind on production when they decided they actually wanted him in it, man. But uh, okay, so what's your what's your number five, mate? We're in the top five. My top five is uh, this was a hard one, man. And again, it's another one of my favourite directors, and it is a director called Richard Linklater. Uh, and this film came out in 1995. I think this is another film I haven't seen, right? If I remember uh, correctly. I don't think I don't think you've seen any of them. Um, well, my two Richard Linklater ones, I was really trying to decide between. Uh, well, three, actually. There was Boyhood, which you have seen. Yeah. Which, you know, as we know, he made it over 12 years, and it's amazing, and was robbed yeah, of the Oscars. Be- yeah, that's one of the most beautiful films, yeah. But then there was also Dazed and Confused, which had one of the best 70s rock soundtracks. And actually... Side story quickly on Dazed and Confused. I wrote an essay on Dazed and Confused to get into college to do film in the first place. And I just wrote about how it was one of the first films that I'd seen at that age where nothing really happened, but in an entertaining way. It was literally just like a hang film about a bunch of kids graduating high school on the last day of school in the late 70s. And it was just them going out drinking and having fun. Was it not that a was... little bit of a coming of age film in it? Well, yeah, it is. But it was all set over the one night. So there's not really much development you can do in that it's just here's this one night everyone's partying and it was really entertaining man and like i don't know it was i was like there's no like overt force i mean that's you know there's nothing for them to rebel again i mean i suppose the the, the rebelling is oh what are you gonna do the rest of your lives oh you know you shouldn't be drinking and partying and all that you could ruin your futures uh what are we gonna do after this summer and all that kind of plans but I don't know. And but so many big actors started out in that. Matthew McConaughey. That's the famous film where he starts in playing the dodgy older guy. When he's like, "Yeah, man, that's what I love about these high school girls. I stay the same age, they get younger." All right, all right, all right. <laughs> that's where it's from. It's right, from right, that right. film, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, so essentially, you've got you know uh, Matthew McConaughey as um, essentially a uh, quagmire. <laughs> Live action quagmire years ago. Uh, ben Affleck's in it, playing a frat boy who likes spanking little boys with paddles. So is this is this your number? This is your number five. five. No, okay. it's not. It's not. It's no, not. No, I was saying, we're going <laughs> way too far into is. this one, and you haven't even mentioned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but my other link latter one is it was that that or before sunrise. So, all right, here we go. So this is the best romantic drama that isn't more widely known. You can shove your notebooks where the sun don't shine. That's what I'm saying. This is one of the best romantic films of all time that people probably haven't heard of or seen. Uh, Ethan Hawke plays Jesse, an American college student travelling through Europe on a rail holiday when he strikes up a conversation with Celine, played by Julie Delphi. Uh, her character is returning to university in France. Now, after feeling the sparks fly a little bit during an initial meeting, Jesse asks her if she wants to get off the train with him and spend a day and night in Vienna before he connects to his next train. Uh, she agrees, and the film follows him as they just generally walk and talk around picturesque Vienna for a day and a night. And they discuss everything from life and death. And Jesse's your typical cynic and Celine's the more romantic. And there's really no more plot than that. It's just us as a viewer intruding on these private conversations as they spend a day and night walking around Vienna. But it's the naturalism of the dialogue that makes this film feel realistic. 
and indeed Linkletter worked with both actors extensively on rewriting the script with them to make their scenes more realistic. As the film progresses, it's implied they may have had a sexual encounter at the night, but we're not 100% sure. And then the next morning when they have to part, they both have to decide was this just a one-night thing or do they want to see each other again? They decide that they won't exchange any contact information, but instead agree to meet at the same spot in six months' time. And then the film ends without us knowing. And both characters get on their respective trains looking hopeful. I mean, that's a good ending, man. That's a great ending to it's that. Beautiful type of ending. Yeah. Beautiful. But does it? Does I think it, I uh... think I've solved that quite well for you there, didn't I? I oh, know you did. Yeah, that's a film that I'll, I haven't seen it, and I probably will watch it because uh, if it's in your number ten, then it's obviously going to be a good film. Um, yeah, I'll. I, I need to. I'll watch it. I will. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. There is a there is a slight there is a slight spoiler. Don't tell me that there's a sequel. <laughs> there's two sequels. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Spoiler, folks, did they or didn't they? Well, you can find out in the sequel. Um, <laughs> and it was called, and that came out in 2004, uh, nine years later, and it was called Before Sunset. And you do find out what happened, but then the story continues another nine years later again in 2013 uh, in a film called Before Midnight. Uh, I mean, this is easily one of the best film trilogies out there. And uh, I've got the Criterion edition of all three of them proudly sat on my shelf. I mean, and it was really hard not to pick Days to Confuse or Boyhood. But yeah, I think as a work going, you know, the overall work of the Before Trilogy just, just edges it for me over Days to Confuse. Days to Confuse is like a fun film where you just sit in and like the music's cool, the clothes are cool, the cars are cool. I mean, it's got a double classic rock soundtrack, double two CD classic rock soundtrack. Every band you can think of, rock band from the 70s, is in Days and Confused. But mm. Before Sunrise, I don't think it's even got any actual music in the film. I'm pretty sure there's no like pop music. It, um, it's just like music from like people you see in the street, or like I think there's. Oh no, there's a, there is a scene where they go to a record shop, David, an actual vinyl shop, and go into a listening booth and listen to some music, and like this whole thing where he's trying to be like, oh yeah, this is cool, and then she's like, no, that's like the worst song ever. That's really that's really not like a, a romantic song at all. But yeah, before sunrise, man. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go get it because it's it's an amazing film. So that brings us on to your number four, David. Mm-hmm. My number four. My number four is probably the most controversial one because I think up to one. It's not Mean Girls, to, is it? Uh, it's not Mean Girls. No, Mean Girls. Spoilers was in my long list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love Mean Girls. Don't be mean on me. Anyway, uh, so my number four. It is probably the most controversial one on my list because it isn't your. You wouldn't think of it as your typical. It's not the like, human centipede, is it? Film. Uh, no, fuck off! Is it the human centipede? Um, I think it's got a currently like a, a 7.0 rating on IMDb. That sort of 61% Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it is the Mummy. Brendan Fraser, mm. Stephen Sommers, the Mummy. Yeah, the Mummy for me. It's my personal favourite action adventure comedy. For me, it's my Raiders. Now, obviously, like if you're going to look at the two films and compare them, Raiders is obviously the better film. But for me, the Mummy is my Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's I I love uh, Egyptology in general. I mean, obviously, it's a bit like uh, loose with uh, how f- factional um, factual it is. You're telling me uh, Rachel Weisz's science isn't strong. The Mummy for me has a, a beautiful blend of comedy and action sequences. The I think the effects in it were quite quite strong as well. I mean, for, for the yeah, time, I, haven't, I haven't actually yeah, for, for the time I haven't actually seen the film for about five years. But it's that sort of film that if it just comes on. The telly, I will just watch it. It doesn't matter where, at what point. 
It could be 20 minutes from the end. It could be, oh, I've missed the, the beginning. Uh, it, it's sort of irrelevant. Um, I love I love the moment. I mean, Brendan Fraser literally almost broke his neck um, filming it. I think he, the, the scene where he's hanging, I think that he was genuinely like, went unconscious during that scene. Um, yeah, it's, it's, for me, it's my Raiders of the Lost Ark. It holds, it holds a very strong place in my heart. Well, I think, I think that's, and you got that right, yeah, because it's the age thing, like, so my Raiders of the Lost Ark is Raiders of the Lost Ark, because <laughs> I was a kid when that was out, so, yeah, what, 1999, so you was a kid when this came out, so, yeah, that makes perfect sense, that's your version of that film, it's your, like you say, it's your action-adventure thing. I, I imagine if you're a kid today, though, you don't get this sort of similar type of uh, period yeah, action Yeah, I wonder what films. would be, what would be the oh, action you know I would say? Comedy? It'd be the Marvel well, films. It'd be the Marvel films. Yeah, Something yeah. like, I, I bet you if you're like an eight or nine-year-old kid today, Guardians of the Galaxy is your type of film like that. Or well, it's your Star Wars, isn't it? That's the funny thing, when they always, everyone cry, crows about the new Star Wars films. I'm like, the Marvel films are the new Star Wars ones. They're the ones kids watch and go, wow. And, you know, so yeah, now I, I, I've got nothing bad to say against the mummy, man. I thought, yeah, I thought I think it's a, Yes, yeah, st- uh, really strong film. I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the Mummy too, as well. That's uh, like the Mummy. I mean, All right, well, let's uh, not the, go crazy. The uh, the Scorpion King, uh, the rock effects. Oh my god! It's like I think isn't that like one of the worst effects ever in cinema <laughs> ever? But it's I still like the film. But the Mummy for me, yeah, bam. So David, uh, but were you a fan of the Mummy? What? The 2017 remake with Tom oh, Cruise. With, oh, with Tom Cruise. Oh, um, no. As oh, Nick God, Morton. Yeah. I did I did specify that this was the Steven Thomas <laughs> one, right? No, you didn't. You didn't, but I'm um, pretty sure I, think I did. We, we, we gathered that by the fact you said Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisson. It, I, you know what? I, I was quite looking forward to that whole monster verse um, that they were trying to build. But yeah, that was just a bad film, wasn't it? It really Don't was. Don't forget, the worst Russell Crowe was Jacqueline Hyde. Mm, <laughs> oh, it really killed the universe, watch. man. Yeah. Well, they haven't made. They're trying to do the whole monsterverse thing, and not one film's been good in that series. Yeah, so, um, been, yeah, I, they've really dropped the ball. But but no, the mummy oh, fucking loved it. One, actually, as much as I like the mummy, I think oh, would I say my favorite Stephen Summers film actually is Deep Rising with Treat Williams and Famke Janssen. Come okay. on, it's it's it's, it's yeah, like a, mo- um, a mo- pure monster B movie on a cruise ship, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Before I, mean, I worked you, on a cruise ship, yeah, so you love cruise ship stuff, yeah. Love cruise ship stuff, man. <laughs> Right, okay, so I think that rounds up your number four. So my number four is, and these four have been set in stone pretty much since I thought about this, mm-hmm. is from 2001. 2001? 2001. Okay, so it's not something from your childhood then. This is no, something that would... that's... Yeah. Mm, okay, yeah, go, any... on, go on. Give me, a, give me uh, another clue. It's oh. a first-time director. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Uh, okay. Go okay, on. you haven't got it. Okay, and it. since then he has made one, three films. Since oh, I know it. 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 You talk, I remember it. I remember it. Go on. Yep. Go on. It real. is Donnie Darko. Now, Donnie Darko, man. Written and directed by Richard Kelly. This was his debut film when he was only 24. 24, David. What have you done when he was 24? <laughs> I'll tell you what he's doing. You was, what? You're, probably worked... oh, you're 42, aren't you? You're telling yeah, me what you've done. Which is just 24 backwards. <laughs> and like that and like the blending of the numbers Donnie Darko is a genre blending 80s time travel horror coming of age comedy drama with an absolutely amazing early performance by Jake Gyllenhaal the soundtrack again this is really powerful in this film I remember illegally downloading all the music from the film and burning my own CD back when people burn CDs it's a thing David look it up 
That's before streaming <laughs> existed. Um, because you couldn't buy the actual CD at the time. The, no, I remember the, the little. I remember the illegal dude that come around with a van and was like, "Buy my CD." Really, I've never seen a CD, man. <laughs> but my buy my DVD, like you know that bloke that's like selling yeah. dodgy DVDs at the market or whatever. This is one thing is not connected to another. This was like Napster days, man, and LimeWire. But yeah, basically, you could only buy the school music on CD. Sorry, mate. No, I was on about the music from the film. Oh, the sorry. I thought you were on about watching it legally. Oh, you're, uh, you're clearly paying so much attention, mate. aren't you? It's, it's brilliant. Uh, bad. Anyway, so the music, but it was it was full of like awesome 80s music. Um, Tears for Fears, The Church, um, oh, Joy Division, and uh, Duran Duran in one of the most bizarre sequences you'll ever see. But, there, I mean, there's so many standout movements in the film. Like, you got Patrick Swayze in one of his last roles playing essentially a paedophile called Jim Cunningham. It's funny, because Kelly's kind of had... The director, Kelly, he's kind of had a, a strange career, and unfortunately, he's been the very definition of a one-hit wonder as a director. He followed up Darko with this bizarre, futuristic, sprawling, epic film called Southland Tales um, that, before you even saw the film, you had to have really read a graphic novel series that he published to just understand the lead up to the film, which obviously no one really bought and so no one understood what the hell was going on with the film. But it was an early appearance from The Rock and uh, it had Sarah Michelle Gellar and Sean William Scott in it. So Buffy, Stifler and The Rock <laughs> in an epic fantasy sci-fi uh, future apocalypse film. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a bit of a failure at the time, uh, but it's weird because it's one of these films now that people are like reassessing, no, 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 it was a modern classic. Eh, it wasn't. I, I mean, I haven't watched it for years myself. I probably will give it a try again sometime. But uh, after that, he made The Box with Cameron Diaz and James Marsden. And that was quite a strong film. Uh, but again, it passed beneath most people's radars. Um, and that was 2009. So Kelly's really not made a film since. Uh, there was an actual, actually terrible, terrible sequel to Donnie Darko called S. Darko that Kelly had no oh, yeah, yeah, with. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it died. On, the only connecting tissue from the original was the young girl who played... His younger sister was in it, and a diff completely different company. I mean, uh, Kelly himself has said he lost the rights to the the the, 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 the character and the universe back then. Yeah, he essentially knew uh, the company, even the production company, didn't exist anymore. So he had absolutely no... And he said he got sick of people, like, tweeting at him and sending a message like, oh, why'd you do the sequel? It's shit. Oh, and he's like, I had nothing to do with it. I was literally nothing I could do about it. And yes, it is terrible, and I have no intention of ever watching it. So it was it's not been good for him. However... And recently, apparently, he was uh, chatting with James Cameron, as you do. You know, I'd love to make one film and then just be able to like chat to James Cameron. But uh, apparently, James Cameron was a massive fan of Donnie Darko, and he told Richard Kelly that he needed to go back to the first film and expand on that universe. I mean, come on, if, you, if, you, if you're going to speak to a guy about universe and world building, Cameron's your man, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm sure Cameron can lend him a few million to get a decent Darko, Darko sequel off the ground. But then again, why would you bother? Because for me, that first film is perfect. Right, it wraps everything up. When I first got the film right, I used to spend an inordinate amount of money on important Region 2 DVDs from Canada. So you could get all these films out on DVD from Canada before they were even released in the cinema in the UK, legally. From like, I think it started with like a mail order thing in the back of a, uh, a magazine, and then it became a website when that became a thing. But I would just buy a shitload of films that I'd never even seen or knew anything about. I, I, and I just, without even seeing the trailers... I know it's bizarre thinking how much money I spent on that. But, I mean, I did this sight unseen, and um, all I knew about this film was the cover was a gigantic, demonic-looking bunny rabbit, and it was a film about a young man who had visions of a demonic-looking bunny rabbit. I was like, yep, that sold me. Now this, I bought this back in 2002, 
at least a year or two before the film even was released in a cinema in the UK. And um, I think it was even a year after that in 2003 when uh, the song from the film, Mad World, got released and spent three weeks at number one in the UK music charts. I mean, it's such a bizarre story with Donnie Darko. I mean, as I said, I watched it at about midnight and afterwards I couldn't decide whether I just, what I just watched was genius or utter rubbish. So I watched it again from two o'clock to about four o'clock in the morning. And then at four o'clock, I was like, yep, that's genius. I mean, I've bought, I've bought the DVD three or four times already, man. There's like another 4K remaster out. One thing I didn't like is that Kelly, I'm all for like expanding the mythology of it all, but he done a director's cut a few years um, ago where he got into explaining too much of the story. That's what people liked about Donnie Darko, was it trying to piece together what happened at the ending. I mean, the plot in the simplest terms possible is... Are you ready? You, when was the last time you saw Donnie Darko? I uh, watched it probably about probably eight years ago, something like that. I remember okay. it quite well. I, yeah. It's, yeah, I've watched it a few times. My, my basic reading of the film is that everything that happens in the film from when the jet engine falls near the start is a tangent universe and it's just borrowed time. And the, it's kind of split. Everything that's happened from that point onwards uh, is not is happening in this like alternate reality. So when we get to the end of the film and the jet plane engine falls down and crashes Donnie and he gets killed in his bed, which ends the film, that's re-establishing the, base, the, the main timeline. And that's why when he's in this alternate timeline and the rabbit's like, well, the world's going to end. His world's going to end in 28 days because he's going to be crushed by a jet engine. But then again, if he died in the first place, those 28 days would have never happened. And this ties in beautifully to the end of the film because he realises what's going to happen. So uh, obviously, obviously, just and just before this, his girlfriend's been run over and killed, which you know, not good. But um, he realizes then, okay, I need to die to complete this thing to stop the world being destroyed, and then hopefully everything will go back to normal. I'm not sure if he understands that completely, but he's laughing when he's there in his bed, and he's got that nice. He, he's 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 got that um, speech at the end of the film. I can't remember the exact words, but it, what works though as that sequence comes in is. For me, one of the best edited music montages of all time. So we've already mentioned the song Mad World by Gary Jules, which everyone thought was R.E.M. It wasn't. It just sounds like the guy. And um, All around me are the million David, do faces. not ruin this song. <laughs> do not ruin this song. Yeah, so that song, just every lyric corresponds perfectly to what we're seeing on the screen. When it says, look right through me, you've got a shot of... Um, Patrick Swayze's pedo character just sat there crying because he realises what an out of shitbag scumbag he is. Um, when it says, teacher, tell me what's my lesson, you see a shot of uh, Drew Barrymore and Noah Wiley's characters who were Donnie's teachers at the school. And then as it builds towards the end of the song, and um, you, you you know, it, the very end scene is just amazing, man. It's so powerful. When his girlfriend cycles past the house and says, hey, what happened? And the little kid says, oh, my neighbour got squished by a jet engine. Oh, that's terrible. Did you know him? No. And then the film ends. You're like, holy crap, man. Yeah, it's, it's it's my favourite modern film out of all of them so far, man. And I'll I go find back. it kind of funny. I, I think you're kind of sad. Stop ruining the song, David. The dreams of right, what's your number three? What's your number three? <laughs> Wait, before gonna... we go on to Donnie Darko, I know one random fact about Donnie Darko. Oh, do I know this? Tell me. It's a certain comedic actor's first ever film. Seth Rogen. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Booyah! Seth Rogen's first ever yeah. film. <laughs> yeah, I did know that. Don't know why I know that. It's just something. I think maybe when the last time I watched it, I was like, "Hey, well, that kid's Seth Rogen," <laughs> and then I looked it up. Um, David, anyway, David, yeah. can I just so, say I commit? I, I doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. 
And you're, you're grasping now like, is that a line from the film? I'm going to nod and say, yes, it is a line from Donnie Darko. Right, okay, let's get to your number three film, David. My number three film. So, when I originally was coming up with this list... This was your... My number three film was going to be my number one film. Ooh, controversial. Because it was the film that I sort of just been telling people it's my favourite film, if you was to ask me. But when I really thought about it, I put it down two places. Because, for various reasons... Anyway, I'll get into it. It's a Tarantino film. Excellent. Uh, it is probably not everyone's favourite Tarantino film, which is Pulp Fiction. Yeah. It's Kill Bill, Volume 1, specifically Volume 1. Couldn't you just cheat and have the combined version? I could, but then I didn't I didn't enjoy Volume 2 as much as I did Volume 1. So wait, one. your favourite Tarantino um, film is one where you're only getting half the story? Honestly, I think if the story was to end and you didn't get the second one, I don't think I'd be that bothered. Clearly. But, I mean, I would be, because she's only halfway through her kill list. I would, but yeah, anyway. Um, I put, you know what, yeah, it does need the second one. Yeah, okay. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I just, I really, I, I, it's the, yeah. That, um, is, that is, without doubt, the most detailed the best, breakdown um, of a Tarantino film. <laughs> it's just, mm, mm, uh, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know Please what, continue. It's, quite, it's quite funny, actually. I went for a job interview uh, when I was like, I can't have been that old, maybe 19. It was to work in game. And they went, for, they asked all these random like questions and they'd had you doing all this stuff. And one of the questions that they asked me in, in front of a group was, um, uh, what's my favourite film? And explain it. And I was like, my favourite film's Kill Bill Volume 1. And they were like, why? And then my mind... Why, David? Completely, why? My mind went completely blank. Well, I mean, have you got, have you got an answer? Because like, I'm asking you that now. Well, I was kind of just like, have you not seen the film? <laughs> It's 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 amazing. I, I love every, every from start to finish. I love every moment when she's uh, you know, the film opens with uh, the bride, the whose church. name you don't even know until like the second film, and it's bleeped out whenever her name's mentioned. Um, she's she's on a she's like bloodied and uh, breathing heavily, and there's this amazing dialogue between her and Bill, and uh, you know it's Bill because she's she wipes his her face the blood off her face with a napkin. And it's got a little Bill on his. On his uh, handkerchief, sorry, and it's just that entire scene. That's one of that is the my, my most favourite scene in any movie is that section where she's like, "Bill, it's your babe." <laughs> you know, ah, oh. it's it's good. I wouldn't say it's the greatest. Honestly, I that for me for me that's my personal favourite moment in cinema. I loved it. No man. And then, and then, just, and then at the end, where she's, where he's like, "Does she know her daughter is still alive?" And then that's just ah. Oh. Okay, well, I mean, you can't argue. Like, like Tar- Tarantino. I mean, I've I got a little fact about um, this film. So, do you know how they got past all the uh, limbs being chopped off in the Crazy Eighty Eight sequence? Uh, used limbless people. Nope. <laughs> okay, go on. I don't know. So that was that was that was my shot in the dark guess uh, using limbless actors. Right, what do you remember about the scene specifically on a visual level? Uh, blood splur- blood blood uh, splurting. Very a very high amount of blood uh, splurts from after a limb's been cut. Right, but it's in black and white. Right. Okay. Yeah. So by doing it in black, well, not all of it. That most of that sequences. It flicks. It flickers from black and white. I'm pr- no, it figures from black and white to colour. I'm not 100% on this, but I thought the reason it was in black and white is because if they did it in colour, they'd get they they wouldn't be able to get away with the rating. 
uh, they get an NC-17 rating, but by doing it in black and white, because the blood doesn't look red and real, therefore it's not real, and it's hyper-stylized, they got away with it. There's a, there's a really there's a similar thing, right? It's, it moves from the um, Scorsese did a similar thing with uh, Taxi Driver back in the day, where they said it, the, the blood's too red, so they made it look black, and apparently, um, oh, okay, if the blood looks black, it doesn't look like blood, therefore it's okay. But arguably, that looks more horrific, right? People are bleeding black, so um, yeah. Um, I would never have Kill Bill that high up my list. I wouldn't have Kill Bill in my list, man. I mean, it's, it's a great film, but for Tarantino, is his best? No way, man. Not even close. Are you, uh, when you're talking about, sorry, when you were talking about the blood scene, are you on about when she's fighting the crazy AZA? The, the crazy yeah. ATA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's colour, mate. Which I, I could have sworn that was black and white when it came out. We can research that and let you know on our next podcast whether we, uh, we were, I've misremembered that wrong, or I could have sworn there was different versions of that scene then, maybe. Maybe. Uh, it, does, don't get, it does it does move from like both but that when she's fighting the crazy ADA that's colour okay I could have sworn it was black and white for that reason that I said dude no uh, uh, for me it's got to be Pulp Fiction Reservoir Dogs probably Inglorious Bastards uh, The Hateful Eight's brilliant like, I mean Tarantino is getting better as he goes on as well I know a lot of people didn't love uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood but I thought that was amazing as well man uh, but bizarrely I haven't got any Tarantino films in my oh, top oh you know 10. what mate it is, it is black and white Woohoo! Yes, in, in your <laughs> you face know, we'll with to, a royale with I know, cheese. We'll have to cut cut that a bit. No, you it's, can. It's, so it flickers between the two, but it's um, the majority of the fight is in black. Do you get around? How did I not remember that? Be- because clearly, it's your favourite Tarantino film. So my number three film is from 1984, and it's directed by Joe Dante, and it is, of course, my second Christmas film in the list. It is Gremlins. I mean, I love Gremlins, man. Uh, do you know what? Everyone loves Gremlins when they see it. And it had that rare thing of when it came out of being a kid's film that was genuinely scary and frightening, genuinely gross as well in places. And it just had that pure anarchic sense of menace to it, man. I mean, Gremlins, they actually killed people in it, man. Like that lady on the stairlift, <laughs> she, she's dead, man. She like... The speed she was going, flying out the window at her age, she's gone, man. There's the, the uh, scientist guy in the lab, the teacher... He's definitely dead. I'm 100%. You don't actually see it on screen. Don't feed them after midnight, man. That's all I know. Well, there's more rules than that. There's don't get them know, wet. Yeah. Don't take them out. Don't, don't yeah. get them wet. Don't put them in bright light. Sunlight will kill them. And don't feed them after midnight. Which, of course, we can get into all the uh, time zone issues, like what if one's travelling. But, hey, well, that's been debated. Well, what, where does when does it stop after midnight? When's the cutoff? Well, um, exactly. This night is never said. What if you said there was six in the morning? No, it's still after midnight. It's always after midnight. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, they could have explained that a little bit better, but then I guess I guess they probably didn't want to get bogged down in the uh, the rules of the. Uh, to, be, to be honest, I haven't seen mid. I haven't seen Gremlins in a long time. Um, a very long. Get time, it. Get actually. it queued up for this coming Christmas, man. Last uh, the year before last year, so the last normal year. There was a re-release of it in the cinema at Christmas and there was some new film on and there was about 10 people in there and Gremlins was sold out. And it was great seeing this whole like new generation of kids absolutely screaming their heads off and being terrified as shit when Spike turns up. And I don't know, it's just, ah, oh, it's, um, I love Gremlins, man. It's just, it's like the anti It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's the anti version of it. Wonderful, so like, it's a wonderful life. I, I always get these mixed up now. <laughs> one of them is called Bedford Falls, and one of them is called Kingston Falls. And that one's, you know, obviously the Gremlins one is named after uh, It's a Wonderful Life one. Uh, early on in the film, Billy's mum, she's watching It's a Wonderful Life 
while uh, making dinner. So essentially, Gremlins is a story of Zach Galligan as Billy Peltzer. And, uh, you know, he, he's a small town bank clerk and he's he's got a thing for the girl who works next to him, played by 80s icon Phoebe Cates. And um, his dad, who's a bit of a crap inventor, gets him a mogwai called Gizmo from a dodgy little shop in Chinatown. And of course, as we've explained the rules, this is what you don't do. So, of course, being a film, you break all the rules and then shit happens. But, I mean, I think what makes Gremlins great is it's the puppet, the puppet work in it. There was no CGI. It was all puppets and the sequel actually was pretty good as well and it was also done by joe dante but what i love is the fact that joe dante owns the rights to gremlins and he said he wants to make a third film but only if they use puppets and not cgi and so far no third film my last point on gremlins is it has the most darkest christmas monologue of all time you know what i'm talking about no, I can't. Like, honestly, I can't remember oh, much okay. on that film. Well, I watched it a long time ago, maybe like 15 years ago. I think I watched it. I was way too young to watch that film. Yeah, which is the best time to watch a film like this. So, um, <laughs> Fee, um, so Zach Galligan's character, Billy, he's walking Phoebe Cates' character home. And she's like all depressed and sad. He's like, but why don't you like Christmas? Everyone loves Christmas. Well, I don't. And then she starts telling us why she doesn't like Christmas, David. And David, it is the darkest, most horrible I don't, thing. Yeah, ever. let's not bum us out. No, 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 it's perfect, it's perfect. <laughs> so essentially, she tells the story and it ends up that her dad was dressed as Santa Claus, broke his neck, coming down the chimney, and they found him two days later, and it was only because of the smell. That's why she doesn't like Christmas. Wow, yeah. <laughs> but what I love, I mean, what uh, I love in that, and it's just, you just, when it cuts back to his face for the reaction shot, it's just like, you're like, you're just thinking, fuck, really shouldn't have asked. <laughs> um, and there's a, there's, it's great because they almost do it as a recurring joke in a second film. This way the music comes in and the camera starts pushing in on there, and she's like a tour guide, and she's got this like tour full, um, bus full of tourists, and she goes, Well, one time I was in Central Park, and there's this man, and he said, Come closer. And then he just, <laughs> Billy comes over and just stops her from telling the rest of the story and cuts it off. I was like, That's brilliant. So, my number two film, Neil, is a Spielberg film. Woohoo! 1941. Uh, 93. No, that's he made a film called 1941 that was... Oh, oh God. You, no, this no. is the film that I'm telling <laughs> I know, you. I know that's a dated film. I was making a Spielberg joke about one of his worst films. Oh. Oh, my God. We'll, we'll forget that. 1941 that came out in 1979. Written by Robert Zemeckis, directed by Steven Spielberg. And it's got a 5.8 on the IMDb. It was pretty bad. I've never seen it. It's, well, I don't think... Well, a lot of people have been told not to. So, David, what is your number two film? So my number two film, Neil, is Jurassic Park. Solid choice, David. Very good choice. Jurassic Park, yep. Uh, it is... I remember when I first watched that film, I was mind-blown by the... Like, quite like the characters were mind-blown. <laughs> you were, that small child uh, in the ball. That scene where she uh, you know, takes the glasses off and is like, whoa. Um, and you see the dinosaurs for the first time and it's just like... Pfft. And I was and I was just as like gobsmacked watching it then as as and it's still you know what every time every time I see that scene I still get like goosebumps. Well, you know why, David? Because life finds a way. Uh, That's a better bad joke that. than you've done today. I'm just saying. <laughs> also, it's got Newman from Seinfeld in it. Newman, right? You don't know who well, that is. Well, anyway, <laughs> great, no, brilliant. I'm moving on. Yeah, Jurassic Park. It's a uh, it's Spielberg's most successful film, which I was I I was. Both surprised about and also not because I thought that you know Spielberg is like 
He's massive. You see, Spielberg's only ever made a billion a billion dollars in one film, and it was Jurassic Park. And when I saw that, I was a bit like, oh, okay. Yeah. Thinking of like all the Spielberg. But if you look at Spielberg's stuff. career, he goes kind of serious issues film, blockbuster film, serious issues film, blockbuster film. So you know. Mm. Yeah, no, I was I was just a bit shocked when I found that out. That is the only film that's ever grossed over a billion that yeah, he's but directed. Look at the films that have um, grossed a billion, and that was one of the first ones to do it. Might have even been the first one to do it. Uh, it is it is a m- masterpiece of cinema. I, again, um, the score. Um, yeah, everyone knows. And what was that? Sorry, yeah, goosebumps. <laughs> goosebumps every time, every time. It was a mind-blowing piece of cinema. Uh, the, I think again, VFX for the time were. I wouldn't even um, argue for the time. They still hold up brilliantly now, man. From yeah, yeah, from yeah. Over twenty do, years yeah, later. For, I mean, for the time, for the time, uh, nineteen ninety-three. It was, um, what. It was mind blowing. I think is, is there any better way of saying it? And did you know that Samuel L. Jackson's in it as well? I did. Yeah, yeah, I did know. Yeah, he's um, hold on to your butts. It's a shame he doesn't get to say. Yeah, says, I want those <laughs> motherfucking dinosaurs out of my motherfucking train plane. <laughs> no, he's hold on to your butts. Not exactly. not one of his most recognisable um, lines. Then he uh, to be honest, his his character death is actually one of the only things I kind of dislike about the film because it was completely sort of. Like, you see his arm come out, and you're like, oh, okay. Oh, oh that guy's dead. Okay. And then you kind of just forget about it. But, um, but yeah, there's... Uh, even though I did just say a sort of a bad word to say about it, I don't have <laughs> a bad word to say about it. I mean, you can't go wrong, mate. You've got Sam Neill, you've got Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, and Richard Attenborough. Although, we do have a problem with Richard, character's ca- Richard Attenborough's character. Oh, name. God. Should we say that story? So, the film would might have even been my number one film if it wasn't for knowing a certain person in my personal life called John Hammond, who, of course, uh, shares the same name with Richard Attenborough's character in the film. Uh, yeah, that man was the worst person I've ever met in my entire life. And... Because I've met him, it's, the film's not my number one. It's only my number two. And if I hadn't have ever met him, it probably would be my number one choice. So, again, personal experience but leading into... Personal, your, yeah, personal, yeah, personal, it, personal relation to, to the story. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, oh, God, yeah. He's, he was the worst human being, I, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I can't argue with anything you said about Jurassic Park. It is a cl- absolute classic when it came out. And like you said, uh, at the time, Spielberg's... Um, most successful film at the box office. Also, it won three Oscars. So you know, it still is most successful. Film. Probably is. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not bothering to check mm. that because this podcast's been on way too long already. Um, but yeah, I, I'm actually quite. Do you know what? Do you like the new Jurassic World films? I kind, I kind of like them. They don't have the same well factor. I like. Yeah, I like them. But I, I'm I like really them, hopeful yeah, for the new one because nothing's nothing's going to have the same well. Well, Jurassic World Dominion coming out at some point in the next year or two. The gang's back together, man. I think we get Sam Neill. I think we get more Jeff Goldblum. And I think even Laura Dern's coming back for it. So, uh, yeah, count me and add in you know, the current cast. So, yeah, colour me excited. Uh, right, so that takes us to my number two. And my number two is also from 1984, just as my number three was. And it's uh, directed by Ivan Reitman. And it, of course, is Ghostbusters. The first, the best. <laughs> The most iconic theme song of all time. Um, yeah, I mean, this is on my list because I almost saw wait, it in a cinema. Wait, continue talking. Continue talking. No, continue talking. No, oh no, this is gonna. 
I don't know if Dave, you can actually play any musical instrument, but I, I, I'm worried that he might have a kazoo or something like that in his house. And when he says continue t talking, that does worry me on a great level. I can hear him rumbling around in the background, and I'm not going to lie, listeners, I'm scared. I'm scared for what okay, may be happening. Are you ready for this, Neil? Okay, go. Are you ready? Oh, no, it's run out of batteries. That's what she said. Oh, no. <laughs> I've got a Stay Puff Teddy that I won at a competition, and it sits on top of our bed, and it, it's run out of batteries. It goes, it just, it just plays the speed. David, oh, I do not want to hear about anything from your bedroom that has run out of batteries. <laughs> So, about that. oh dear, what a disappointment is what she is what also oh, no. something I guess you hear in your bedroom as well. So this is on my list because I almost saw it in a cinema when I was seven. Because um, originally I was on a day out there with my dad and we was going to go and see the re-release of The Jungle Book. But it was sold out and so my dad went to take me to see Ghostbusters instead. Uh, despite being a PG, the person at the cinema said it might be a bit much for a seven-year-old. Do you know what? Thank fuck for that. They were right. It was probably a few years later when VHS came out and uh, we had our dodgy VHS van man come around every week uh, and he'd give you like the binder full of uh, VHS thieves and you'd pick which film you wanted, wanted to rent. And, uh, you know, they'd clearly been played to death, these films, or dodgy copies as they probably were in the first place. But uh, that's how I finally got to see Ghostbusters a couple of years later. And yet, even then, a few years later, it scared the living piss out of me. I mean, David, that scene with the librarian ghost at the start... How does that not scare you now, even now? No, yeah, yeah, it's 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 freaky, yeah. I mean, but that's what I love about the film is the eighties style special effects. They just work for it, man, don't they? They are genuinely creepier. And you know, I could, I could Google how they were done, but I don't want to. I you know, look at modern film and like you know it's CGI. But I look at something like Ghostbusters, like I don't know how they did that, but I don't care, and it looks awesome. I mean, you got to talk about the song, the music, and the score from Ghostbusters, right? Ray Parker Jr. Ghostbusters. Strange. Yeah. In your neighborhood. Yeah. Who are you gonna call? I don't think you can legally sing anymore without. Oh, us how can you? How could you not? How could you not finish that? Because, because, because <laughs> I, I respect our listeners too much, David, to subject them to that. <gasps> but no. So obviously the big song in it. But what about the score music in it as well? I'm more talking about Zool's theme. You know that dun dun. If, I'm obviously clearly not as musically talented at singing bits and songs as David is, but if you yeah, you up again. yeah yeah, but if you've seen the trailer for the new Ghostbusters film coming out later this year, Afterlife, the scene with Paul Rudd in the supermarket and the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, that little musical sting and that bit, that immediately made me think, oh, this could be great because they've got the same music from the original film in it. This film, man, we would play it at school, right? We would be in the playground at school and we'd re re we would reenact scenes from it. Admittedly, we had issues because none of us wanted to be Egon or Ray. Were you those kids with like proton packs? No, going no, just, just, <laughs> our, just our rucksacks and like maybe <laughs> yeah. a stick if we were lucky. And we would just stand there and we'd be and we'd be recite line for line. And I remember all the arguments would be over who got to be who. No one wanted to be Winston because he wasn't a Ghostbuster until later on. So, like, he was just hired because they needed more help. So no one wanted to be Winston. You know, I talking similar, I remember pretending to be uh, to, pretending to be dinosaurs after watching Jurassic that's, Park. That's sad and scary, David. When I was a kid as well. That's, that, that, that's, you, <laughs> In the playground, running around being like, you, you should see a uh, doctor or some kind of mental health professional, I think, for that. Wait, no one wanted to be Winston? No, because he wasn't a scientist, and he turns up in the film, like, about an hour and a half into it. Well, about an hour into it. He's literally the guy they hire because... 
They needed extra help. That's what. Yeah, but he's funny. <laughs> he gets some good lines in it. I will give him that. It's brilliant. No, it wasn't even that no one wanted to be Winston. No one wanted to. Be, no one wanted to be Ray, and no one wanted to be Egon. Everyone wanted to be fucking Venkman because he had all the best lines, and he was just Bill Murray being effortlessly cool. But what Ghostbusters did really well, and is a perfect example of, it's a horror film and it's a comedy, exactly, and it just gets the balance perfectly right. It's genuinely funny throughout, and it genuinely makes you jump in places as well. Some of the lines from the film, right? David, when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. Um, there is no Dana, only Zool. But of course, the best line from the film has to be, 40 years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Yeah, Ghostbusters, man. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. I even like the sequel. Like well, that... a, lot, a lot of people slag off the sequel, but it's not as good as the first, but it's still perfectly fine. Well, that, Neil, leads me on perfectly to my number one choice. No, it doesn't. Which is also no, it doesn't. a horror comedy. But before that, we've got to go through... The long list. My long list of films that didn't make my top ten, but I really love them as movies are... Uh, Les Mis. No. Blackfish. Good, Goodfellas. Midsummer. Uh, Inglorious Bastards. Mean Girls. Fargo. Lord of the Rings, Terminator 7, Psycho, Lost Boys, Fight Club, Stand By Me, The Prestige, Boyhood, Small Soldiers, Avengers, both Infinity War and Endgame, uh, Alien, The Thing, uh, Captain America, Winter Soldier, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars, uh, 1 and t- well, 4 and 5, I guess. Uh, uh, <laughs> Old Boy, The Breakfast Club, The Matrix. Oh, Breakfast Club. Uh, Shawshank Redemption. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, uh, The Godfather, Die Hard, Green Book, uh, Shutter Island, The Truman Show. Uh, Dark Knight, uh, Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, Seven Samurai, Whiplash, Toy Story 1 and 2, 3, uh, American Beauty, Full Metal Jacket, 1917, Dunkirk, Saving Private Ryan, Heat, Prisoners, Donnie Darko, 12 Years a Slave, Into the Wild, Rush, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hand breathe. <sighs> right, so what page did you have up on the IMDb for that? Uh, <laughs> right, so for me, yeah, just missing out on mine, uh, Scott Pilgrim, Seven, Lord of the Rings, Apocalypse Now, Die Hard, Groundhog Day, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Parasite, Pan's Labyrinth, The Devil's Backbone, Pulp Fiction, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Stand By Me, Inception, The Dark Knight, Star Wars 4, 5 and 6, nope, just 4 and 6, we've already done 5, yes, uh, Boyhood, Rocky, E.T., which was the first film I ever saw in the cinema, Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, The Big Lebowski and Fargo, Aliens, Alien, Drive by Nicholas Winding Refn, The Thing, Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Goonies, Goodfellas, again, because I said it once already, so I will change it. Goonies. Yeah, I forgot the Goonies. Goonies. Casino, Evil Dead 2, The Prestige, Predator, Total Recall. Got to get my 80s Arnie's in there. Uh, Leon, From Dust Till Dawn, Spirited Away, Old Boy, Singing in the Motherfucking Rain. Reservoir Dogs, that is in the Samuel L. Jackson version of it. It's just singing in the rain. Uh, Inglorious Bastards, Silence of the Lambs, Magnolia, Guardians of the Galaxy, Usual Suspects, The Matrix, Fight Club, Jurassic Park, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. <sighs> we had a lot of similar ones in there. I didn't hear Mean Girls, mate. Where I didn't hear Mean Girls in yours. I d- oh, I said it. <laughs> I said it. I am not going back to listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> as, as, well, yeah, okay, so we had a bit of an argument about Mean Girls. I was just like, 
it should not be on anyone's top 10 films of all times list. It's a perfectly good film. It's a not great top film. 10 films of all times, but it's an enjoyable, fun, good film. I don't think this. I don't think there's in many films, even in our long list, that we disagree with. Although I think I did hear... Um... Good job, Glenn Corco. You go, Glenn Corco. <laughs> right, David. So, after what On seems... Wednesdays, we wear pink. Yeah. And after what seems like hours, and actually is literal hours, we come to your number one, David. And it is... Drum roll, uh... please. Uh, my number one film is Scream. By Wes Craven, which probably might not, you know, <laughs> might not think is uh, most people's number one film, but that sound you can hear is the sound of David frantically backpedaling his first choice as he tries to justify it right now. But please proceed. Well, I don't feel the need to justify it because Scream's a fantastic film on its own. It might not make a lot of people's number ones, and it's actually the lowest rated film. The second lowest rated film behind The Mummy on my list. I love slashers and it's my favourite slasher film. It's my favourite horror film in general. It's And it's my favourite film in general. Wes Craven um, is the, a master of horror and slasher films in general. Nightmare on Elm Street could have been easily on my top ten. Yep, agreed. Uh, as well. Um, I, I was partial to Wes Craven's Shocker in the 80s. Yeah, again, beautiful film. His Heels of Eyes isn't everybody isn't for everybody, but it's still a decent film. Uh, a new nightmare. Scream Actually, is... a new nightmare was kind of the precursor to Scream, wasn't it? It was almost like um, a trial. Yeah, it's. Um, but Scream was like it was it was a love letter to the slasher genre, and mm. it's a horror classic now, what? and it and it used a horror classic just like the, all the quotes from all the brilliant classic horror films of the past. Uh, we all go a little it's... mad sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but and I love that. And it's like, <laughs> oh, psycho. Um, strong cast of characters. Uh, I mean, they kill off the most famous person in the film within the first five minutes. He breathed new life into the slasher genre. The slasher genre, which it's it's gone in peaks. You know, it's rode high in the eighties, and then during the nineties, it was kind of slide into slide I, a little I bit. I disagree with that because I think it, I think horror films and slashers, slasher slasher genres like bam up there. But the thing with slasher films is they're always made, and it's just the right. It's just marketing, if I'm honest, because they're cheap to make, and comparatively to what they get, they cost to make. If one's a big yeah, hit, but slashers were genuinely scary. Before and they're not now. Yeah, but Scream isn't Scream's scary in places, but it's also Scream Scream's scary. Yeah, but it's also a Scream's got. I wouldn't put yeah, but I wouldn't put Scream moments. alongside Nightmare on Elm Street. That's genuinely <laughs> terrifying. Now the the uh, the the, the uh, body bag scene in the high school. Honest to God, that scene every time I see it, it gives me. If I had to go a Wes Craven film, I probably would actually go Nightmare on Elm Street because I remember that giving me nightmares when I was a kid, man. Uh, Scream for me is. Uh, it it deserves to be remembered as one of the greatest horror films of all time, in my, in my opinion, and it's my personal favorite film. Uh, Neil, what's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know, it's a hard one. I I probably I actually no, I, I do know now. It was on my long list and it just missed out. John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah, the Thing yeah. is just again, it's one of those films that's perfect. I got into a fight with my um with my lecturer at, at university because I because he asked me. Well, um, you actually exchanged punches. No, 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 we didn't exchange punches. Oh, okay. a, a verbal disagreement, uh, much like we have on this podcast now. Yeah. Uh, he asked a question because we were talking about masculinity in horror films or whatever, and he was like, "Name a f- name a um, 
a, a slasher film where the uh, where it's the female that's the killer. And what do you immediately think of? Oh, yeah, good shout. Okay, well, I, I, I was like, bang, hand up, immediately knew. I was uh, Friday the 13th, straight this away. This is for of course. Pam- it's Pamela Voorhees is the uh, the killer in that, and and he was just like, no, it's Jason. So you had the scream then, argument sort of... in real life, awesome. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I was sort of just like, no, it's 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 Pamela, it's Pamela Voorhees, he's the killer. It's and then I was like, it's in Scream, it's a whole section in Scream. And, uh, and, he, and then he just fucking moved on from the the class and like, and I was just like, what the fuck? Become an alcoholic, quit his job, blame um, David for the. The way his career went. Yeah, really, really, you know, really bubbly. And then after the class, he pulled me aside and was like, yeah, you know what, you were right. You couldn't have fucking said that in front of the entire class. What are your thoughts on, first of all, Scream 4? Would you rather uh, forget it existed? Well, Scream, Scream 2, 3 and 4, just in general, like, the, the sequels uh, weren't as Law good. Law of Diminishing Returns. Films. And what is your thoughts, yeah, the... then, on the remake of Scream coming out? Well, it's kind of like a reboot, isn't it? The original cast coming yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of... You know what? It's going to sound stupid, but because Wes Craven's died, is um, not not involved in it at all. I don't. I almost don't want it to happen. Yeah, but it's happening. I don't it's feel happening, like David. it needs it's, to it's happen. It's coming out. I know. I know it's happening, but I don't feel like it needs to happen. Why do you need? Why do we need it? Why can't we just have Scream? Why are they using the Scream like the Scream name? To basically advertise this new slasher, but it's going to be because of the screen, because of the screen name, it carries people. Oh, yeah, I know, I get it, but that's just basically like, uh, no, I want it. I want. There's no need. Just go and watch the original screen. Well, apparently, Courtney Cox, Courtney Cox has clarified that the new screen film is not Scream Five, but a brand new launch. So I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. Having Courtney Cox, Nev Campbell, um, and David Arquette back playing their characters from the original. Yeah, I mean. Everyone thought that guy was going to die every film, man. Yes. <laughs> Dewey. Every time he's like, it gets. How many times does he almost die as well? All the time. Brilliant. I like, I, by the law of averages, he should be dead just because of how pants he was. I'm quietly hopeful because the new Scream has been directed by Matt Benetoli Open and Tyler Gillette. Who are they, you might ask, David? Oh, my mentor. Oh, okay. Who, who, who are they, I might ask? They are the directors behind 2019's Ready or Not. Which I fucking yeah. loved, which was a proper old school slasher horrific. So yeah, it was good fun. It was good fun, ready or not. I'm hoping the ending. The ending was fucking <laughs> the hilarious. Man. Stitches. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I am more hopeful about this scream remake, remake, reboot, boot make, whatever the fuck they're going to call it, because of these guys being behind it. I don't think they would take it on if they weren't didn't have a good idea to do to something fresh. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. It needs it. The slasher genre needs it. And to be ready or not was a brilliant uh, installment into it. Anyway, so on to my number one. And drumroll, please. It's more like a, it's more like a, a, a drum, a drum cough. But um, okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. You hit your microphone there, didn't you? No, I was hitting the table. Go on. Just tell me what your number one is. Okay, so my number one film is from 1985. No surprise there. And it is directed by Mr. Robert Zemeckis. And, of course, it is Back to the Future. I mean, come on. Look at the name of the podcast. Look at the logo. What else could it possibly be? I mean, it's a... Yeah, when it was my number five, I knew I couldn't talk about it. Or it's because I knew it was your number one. 
So we were just like, okay. It's yeah, a dead giveaway, it. right, when you see the name of the podcast. <laughs> so, of course, my number one has to be Back to the Future. So I was eight when Back to the Future came out in 1985. And I reckon it still must have been a good few years before I finally actually got to see it when it came on network TV one Christmas. So when I was growing up, David, um, you know, you always have films that are shown every year at Christmas. I mean, I think more so in the older days because there was less channels, right? So we had less channels. So whenever there was a big film on, you would tape it and watch it again and again and again. And I taped Back to the Future and I wore that tape out, man. Like I literally, I would apparently my my friends would like when I walked to school in the morning, they'd like knock on the door and I would be sat there watching Back to the Future before I went to school almost every morning. I wore that tape out. Since then, I've bought it every version of it on DVD. I've now got the new pristine 4K box set with more stuff on it than I've even had chance to watch yet. But um, I don't know. For me, it just presented such an awesome, fun version of America that seemed so much more brighter and colourful than life in the UK at the time and it's funny watching it back as an adult I don't even notice all the but product placement that's it you stuff. don't notice the basic yeah. product placement like driving past a Burger King when he's doing when he's on a skateboard and all that kind of stuff I, th- I honestly credit this though as the film that inadvertently got me started on my love of film in general because it was the first thing that I watched repeatedly all the time Michael J Flox playing Johnny Be Good at the end that's such an iconic moment that probably led to me playing the guitar because soon after that I picked I started playing guitar I honestly don't even know what more you can say about Back to the Future. Like you said, the, the theme song. If you listen to our theme song, it sounds a little bit like it, but not enough so we get sued. It, I love that it's the film where the geek wins the day in it, you know. You've got Biff, who's a brilliant villain. I mean, when you get to Back to the Future 2, you've got Biff as Trump, however many years. He is Trump. He is Trump, right yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's brilliant. The coolness of Marty McFly, man, like... And it's funny, you look at him and he's not cool, but it's the idea of what was cool in the 80s, you know. He's just charismatic. He is, yeah. the, uh, he is charisma in a personated, <laughs> like, yeah. that is Michael J. Fox. That is Marty McFly. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just, I mean, I love that in like the late ones, you've got Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers playing his boss in the thing. I mean, it's hard to talk about Back to the Future without talking about it as a full trilogy. I mean, if I had to pick one, you'd go Back to the Future 1. But really, you're talking about all three. And um, I know it's bizarre. Like a lot of people, they're split between one and two. I think they're both just as good as each other. What Back to the Future did as well that was um, groundbreaking at the time is after the success of one, when they made Back to the Future two, they left it on that massive cliffhanger where Doc has a heart attack and collapses in the street. He's like, Doc, we got to go mm. back. We got to go back. And then he like dropped. He goes, Great Scott, and drops dead. Well, heart attack or whatever. But then I remember this. They bizarrely show you a trailer for Back to the Future 3 at the end of Back to the Future 2. And you're like, but you've just blown the fucking... Like, you've blown the twist. We know clearly know that he was going to survive in that, but you've shown us everything that happens and now they're back in the old Wild West. So I remember that really annoying mm. me at the time. It, was like, it wasn't like, a, a, like a, a, a brief snippet. It was a full like couple of minutes trailer. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people didn't like the Western setting. Uh, but I mean, I, I I I was lucky enough to actually finish seeing the trilogy in the cinema. I think I was up with my parents in Liverpool on holiday years and years ago, and we got to see Back to the Future Three in the cinema. So I actually got to see it originally um, in that way. Uh, Christopher Lloyd is Doc Brown, who ironically wasn't that old when he played Doc Brown. Michael J. Fox is older than him now than when he was in the film than than Christopher Lloyd was when he played him in the film. Oh yeah, obviously because time passes. Um... Yeah, but yeah, but you, you you look at Christopher Lloyd in that film and he looks like an old man. Uh, but you also have to laugh. I, t- I, t- I tell you who's a 
playing one who's got one of his early roles in um, Back to the Future as well is that Billy Zane is one of uh, Biff's thugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and did you know, Back to the Future 2, you know when he goes up to the arcade game and they're like, oh, those two little kids are like, oh, you have to use your hands? That's like a kid's toy. Do you know? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Do you know who the kid is? I'm trying to think of his face looking at him. No, you're trying to Google. Uh, I can clearly hear you on a computer. In my mind's eye. I'm not, I'm not touching my brain. I can hear you typing. I'm not even touching it. I can hear you typing, man. So disrespectful, man! It, I can hear you typing. typing. Are you trying to? T- are you typing and trying to blame it on me because you forgot the guy's name? No, it's Elijah Wood, Video Game Boy One. Boom, Elijah Wood, man, in it. Yeah, I just love Back to the, the, the other really good thing about Back to the Future is again, and it's similar to the Gremlins things, is the uh, the the writers and directors of it. So you know, I think it's uh, Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis. They've said, as long as they're alive, no one touches Back to the Future. I would agree that it is one of few perfect trilogies. I know not a lot of people are as hot on part three, but I think it rounds off the story perfectly. There is no more story to tell after that. And I don't even, you know, you know, like usually when there's something you really love, like a, um, a fantasy world or a sci-fi thing, you, and you want to endlessly speculate about where and how it could go. I don't want to do that with Back to the Future. It's finished. The story's done. I don't want to see Marty come back as Doc. And set someone else on a new story. I just don't want to see it. No. no. Leave it. It's no. done. Ghostbusters, Gremlins and Back to the Future are like my holy trilogy of films that should never be touched. And I really fucked that up with Ghostbusters. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Although, yeah, I'm just... I could go on a rant. Don't get into it, man. Don't get no, into not... it. Don't get into it. No, no, no. Just <laughs> I've calmed. I've calmed. I've calmed. Um, yeah, so I believe that wraps up our... That rounds us, yeah. That was an epic podcast today, David. <laughs> it's clearly... I mean, hopefully uh, hopefully people get to know us. Like, uh, you know, the, the, the listeners get to know us and our um, taste in films a little bit more now than perhaps what they did do. Oh, yeah, definitely. I you mean... Know, get to know us a little bit more. Get to know what... Uh, I think that's why it comes down to, like we said at the start of the podcast, how do you quantify what is your best film? It was difficult. It really was. I, I, I don't like, think it was. If, if, sitting, like, anyone listening, just if, if you've stuck around for however long this has lasted, which I think was long. Uh, We're coming up to about four and a half hours. Ten now. Come up with your own top ten lists. Yeah, so if you haven't enjoyed today's podcast, please interact with us. Uh, drop your top ten lists on Twitter. Trust us, as David said, it's a lot harder than you think. But, um, you know, say, how can you, you know, we want to we want to interact with you guys. So, like, say, bullshit, that film should be on the list. What the fuck are you guys thinking? Say it. Tell us Tell us what there. Right? If you're a massive Mean Girls fan, like apparently David was, and then tell us why it should have been in our top ten <laughs> was. list. David was. Yeah, because it, it didn't make your top ten. That's why. But, um... Yeah, that's about all the time we got for today. Oh, one last thing is we have now set up, if you go to our link tree on our Twitter feed, then there is an option to buy us a coffee. Electronically, obviously, because, you know, I actually don't drink coffee. But essentially, if you like the podcast and want to give us a couple of dollars or pounds or currency of your choice, so, you know, we can become internet billionaires, David, just watch the money roll in, then, you know, feel free to drop us a couple of bucks here and there. Right, so I think that brings us to about the end of our most epic podcast to date. Hopefully, if you've listened to this, we thank you because we had to listen to it, editing it, and it took a long time as well. David, I should let, give you a little bit of warning that um, coming up soon, we are probably going to do our top 10 directors of all time, which, okay. do you know what? I think will be That's going to be wildly, just as difficult. No, but it's going to be wildly different from, uh, I think, our top 10 yeah. films. Because you're going to be looking at... Probably, yeah. Because yeah, you're going to be looking, looking at filmmakers who have a, a body of work rather than one or two films. Yeah. So one or two. I think... I think there's a quite a lot of 
films and directors that we left off these lists uh, who have maybe not done a lot. I mean, Richard Kelly's an example. He did Donnie Darko and two other mm. films, but that's not I mean, four. I don't think I had a single Scorsese film. I know, I know. No Scorsese. My top ten. My top ten. Anyway. I didn't have, I didn't have any Tarantino. No Tarantino, no Scorsese. I didn't have Spielberg in mind, mate. I didn't have Spielberg. Didn't have the Coen Brothers. Didn't have Peter Jackson. Didn't have Guillermo del Toro. I know. Uh, it's 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 a no Wes. No Wes Anderson. Lot of people missed out. No Wes Anderson. No Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> I mean, I should have made room for one of Wes Anderson film, man. If I had twenty, I could have got one in. But right, I'm going to Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez. Uh you know what, mate? Yeah, Sky Kids was a good film. What? No, I'm joking. Oh, thank <laughs> I was going to say Dust Till Dawn, motherfucker. Jesus Christ! Oh uh, no. I I think I'm going to go for a quiet lie down in a in a padded room after that, David. And uh, I'm gonna have a drink because it's been an ordeal. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. Right. See you next time. Bye-bye. And cut. We needed roads.